Okay, welcome to the Automate Construction Podcast. I'm here with the Terran Robotics team. Zach, Daniel, Nick, Nate. Um, can you introduce yourselves and your roles a little bit? Yep, my name is uh, Zach DeWheel. I'm co-founder and CEO of Terran Robotics. Uh, Daniel Lowe, uh, also co-founder and uh, chief design officer. Nick Ely, mechanical engineer. And Nate O'Donnell, and I do marketing and operations. So we've got the whole team in this uh, box conversion. Uh, it's a mobile unit. Daniel built it. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, so this is the, the last uh, tiny home on wheels I built before uh, going back to grad school for architecture. Uh, this was built as a mobile venue, so it's uh, a little more unique than others, but this side looks like a house, so it's, it's our background today. I was going to ask you if, uh, like, where from there you met each other, but you've known each other for much longer than that. Yeah, Zach and I met in uh, student cooperative housing. Uh, it must have been like 2008 or nine at this point. So first big project together uh, was rezoning some property um, about a decade ago, and then came forward, and, and this has been the kind of current endeavor for the last three, four years. And a little bit of your uh, work history. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I've uh, been in software for a long time, uh, always doing kind of AI-related related work, was doing uh, energy analytics, uh, was also doing uh, protein function prediction, uh, and more recently robotics. Uh, but yeah, done everything also on the, on the software side, front-end, back-end, web, de web development, uh, embedded development, all, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you mentioned you worked at Intel. Uh, yep. Yeah, yeah, I was at uh, Nirvana for a few months. Uh, I wanted to work at a startup, found, found that place, and like three months after I joined, got bought by Intel. So everyone else was celebrating. I was like, hey, I kind of want to work at a startup, but uh, it worked out worked out well. Uh, I got to do some yeah cool work there at Intel. So you start Terran Robotics. Uh, what's day one? Day one. I mean, I think maybe day zero sure. was uh, was us kind of hanging out uh, in my office. Uh, there there are a few of us uh, also not not present, just kind of brainstorming, uh, thinking what. Uh, yeah, how can we bring robotics to, to industry? Uh, I had experience with robotics at Intel, uh, especially at kind of low-cost robots uh, and, and using reinforcement learning to control them. Uh, so we were looking at everything from agriculture to construction, uh, different, yeah, what, where, how can we bring it, bring it to market? We actually like interviewed a bunch of farmers like looking down that, that route, um, but it ultimately ended up uh, where, where we are now. Mm -hmm. And what other, uh, like, how did you end up with that decision? What were the comparative factors of things that you found better uh, in the pursuit, which we'll get into in a second. We haven't even touched on what you're doing is sure, building sure. autonomously with drones. So that's really sick. We'll get into. Yep. Uh, but how did you select the technology you would pursue? Yeah. So the, the initial, the initial goal was uh, how to reduce the cost of living as much as possible. Uh, we just like seen so many people uh, uh, suffering from having uh, like increasing cost of housing, like seen so many places losing their vitality due to the, the increase in housing, like whether it was here in Bloomington or uh, out in like Berkeley. I mean, everywhere we go, like there's, you see more people having to, uh, you know, stop doing the things they love and, you know, make more money, take second jobs, that kind of thing. Um, and so that, that's kind of been the primary focus. Uh, and so then that's kind of where, where we got to the construction uh, is, you know, 50% of, of Americans spend more than 50% of their, their uh, paycheck on, on housing. Mm. Um, so, like, if you can reduce that, you can make a big impact on uh, their quality of life. Uh, so, yeah, so then we were looking at if we're going to bring robots to construction, uh, the labor costs are going to drop significantly, uh, and it's going to be primary material costs. 
Uh, so we looked at a bunch of different construction methods, which methods had the lowest material costs, uh, and that's where we ended up with something like Adobe, uh, where, where the material costs are, are almost zero. Uh, and the only reason we have people don't do it as much now is because there's so much labor. Right? It's like, uh, I think something like 90% of the cost of building an Adobe house mm -hmm. is labor, uh, in the U.S. anyway. Um, in other parts of the world where labor is cheaper, people do it more. Um, but yeah, once, once labor has any value uh, relative to the, to the materials, it, it doesn't make sense. Uh, that's where the robots come in. So Nate, since you're the marketing guy, uh, I'll ask you for the mile high um, depiction, like the elevator pitch of the product. Sure, yeah. So uh, housing is, is, is like, it, it's a multi-dimensional product in a lot of ways. It, it, it's meeting a lot of different needs. So we started from the, uh, you know, asking the question of how can we reduce the cost of living uh, as much as possible. Uh, and then and then that question kind of led to a series of, uh, of other questions like what's important to people in a house. So the cost of uh, purchasing a house is a big one. So probably our, you know, our biggest like banner, you know, benefit is that this material and with this, uh, you know, method that we're developing of deploying it, uh, ends up being you know the lowest cost walls that you can that you can buy. Uh, Nick, maybe you can get into more detail about the actual solution and like what's going on there and like how the build process will look uh, and like the setup process you guys showed me yesterday. Uh, so uh, I guess one of our strengths uh, with the drone is it's more like mobile crane, right? We can take it anywhere. It's easily transported. It'll fit in a regular car trailer, right? So we can wheel it up in there. We've got a cart developed uh, that you've got some good videos of that has the power supplies in the base of it. So we can literally just roll the drone out, uh, take the drone off of the cart, and then we can plug the uh, cart into AC power, and then it'll convert everything and power yeah. the drone itself. And we're talking about a big drone. It's like a diameter of six feet? or it, uh, It's eight feet. Eight. Um, from like parallel side. It's... Uh, and then corner to corner is 101, 100, yeah. yeah, somewhere around in there. Somewhere in there, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good-sized drone. Uh, it's got 200 pounds of thrust. It's uh, It weighs in around 70 pounds, so um, it could potentially pick up around 100 pounds with factor safety for being able to control thrust and uh, steer, but I don't see us ever really picking up 100 pounds, but... Well, with your tiny home experience, the technology that was described, how would it be applied on a construction site? Uh, verse, well, so my, my background's from like stick framing, which mm -hmm. is a, a pretty uh, different approach to construction. Um, as it's deployed on the site, though, if you're like, you know, take a, a tiny home, for example, or mm -hmm. a small accessory dwelling unit, um, you mix amount of the material, you have a, a pile or some kind of like, you know, basic extrusion that, that the machine can come in and pick up, set on the site, set on the wall assembly, um, that's step one. Just the fluid material coming from point A to point B, and that's giving you a rough wall shape. And you come back with a secondary tool that impacts the side and the top of that wall assembly, and that's how you form the, yeah, the finished wall shape. Nice. So when all of that comes together, what do you get? Yeah, I mean, then the, I mean the, walls, the walls then are like fairly thick relative to like a stick frame, stick frame wall. It's more, more like a, a concrete wall, something like that. Um, and the, the walls are, are uh, they actually hold moisture, so they, they regulate the humidity passively. Uh, and, and yeah, they're low cost. They have like a lot of uh, soundproofing actually. So it's like with concrete, there's soundproofing in uh, not letting outside sound in, uh, but it reflects a lot of sound inside those, those kind of buildings. 
uh, the, the Adobe walls that we build actually don't reflect as much sound as well, so it's even quieter inside. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's a bunch of benefits like that of the, the walls themselves. This is a little in the weeds, but the concrete homes sometimes need cleverly placed routers to have Wi-Fi in uh, every room. Is Does Adobe have that same kind of... Yeah, Adobe will have similar similar situation, primarily because of the water in mm -hmm. the walls. Uh, so the water is what's attenuating the, the Wi-Fi sim signal. Um, so, so yeah, so the, the more water in the wall, the, the less, or sure. the, the more, more that'll be an issue, but, um, yeah. So back to, I guess, kind of the early days of the company, uh, how have you progressed and what were some of the trials and tribulations to overcome from there to here? And maybe some of the ones looking forward we can get into as well. Sure. Sure. I mean, yeah, there've been, been a ton. Um, I mean, I think. Even even just the drone, the platform itself, uh, we're now on our third our third drone. Uh, first one we got off the shelf. Uh, quickly learned that wasn't gonna that wasn't gonna cut it. Um, built built another one, and then that one uh, wasn't gonna have enough uh, thrust. We were kind of like right at the right at the edge of being able to pick up what we wanted to pick up. Um, and so then we have this new one uh, with a lot more thrust. Uh, it's definitely more than we need, uh, so we don't have that problem. Mm -hmm. Um, and then also getting power to the drone. So this drone is uh, it's not battery powered like most drones you see. Uh, it's powered by a tether. Uh, and so getting that power supply system all working, uh, we've definitely burned through many, many a power supply uh, getting, getting that working. But that, that's been stable for quite some time now. What was the off-the-shelf solution you started with? Uh, I actually started with a DJI uh, Matrice Pro 600 or cool. 600 Pro, something, somewhere in that... that uh, yeah, yeah, and it was just, it was too hard to, we, we couldn't get access, low enough level access to the controller. Uh, so like most most drones, um, they're assuming that you're flying free flight kind of with nothing around, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, there's there's all assumptions about uh, how much you can drift. Uh, when you say you want to be in a particular position, like how close to that particular position do you want to be? Um, if you're flying a camera around, it might not matter if you're off by a few centimeters, um, it might matter more that you're kind of flowing, you're flying stably and smoothly. Mm -hmm. uh, for us, uh, we actually care less about being stable and smooth and more about really tightly holding that position. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's trade-offs there that just weren't available in the software uh, of those you know, kind of off-the-shelf off drones. So yeah, had to, had to do all that ourselves. Yeah, that makes sense. And so the software you're working with is pretty complex. Can you try to describe, uh, I guess, your goals with that? Yeah, so the, uh, the software, the, the basic idea is that um, it's, it's kind of learning how to, how to fly, right? So there's, uh, we, have, we have on the drone, there's a claw hanging from the bottom, but we could attach other tools. Uh, and so the flight dynamics are actually a lot more complex than just, again, a standard, standard drone with, with static payload. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we started with is literally uh, providing or like letting the, letting the drone take random actions. Uh, and it senses the world, senses uh, how those random actions affect flight, uh, and learn uh, learn what the dynamics are. Uh, and so as it learns those dynamics, uh, it can fly more and more stably. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's kind of like a curriculum, just like yeah, training a kid or training a dog. It starts out with like a very simple uh, goal, uh, and then kind of progressively make the goal more difficult, uh, add more challenges as it kind of learns learns to deal with those uh, those difficulties. So what kind of early hazards are there, like the trips and falls? Um, I mean, there are all kinds of things. I guess, I guess, like one that was that was uh, that was pretty pretty fun actually was uh, we would be training, it would be flying stably at night, uh, you know, staying up all night trying to get it get it working. It's working, coming in the next morning, and it's not working anymore. Um, and it turns out the problem was actually that the temperature was changing, uh, and so uh, you know the the density of air changes based on the weather, the humidity, sure. and the and the temperature. 
Uh, and so uh, typically in order to handle that, you would have to, uh, you know, do all the math to figure out yourself. Like how does, how does this affect the air density? How does the air density affect the flight? Mm -hmm. um, all we had to do was add a temperature sensor, collect more data. Uh, it was like another day or two of data. Uh, and now it knows that in, you know, in, in uh, warm temperatures, it has to fly differently than in cold temperatures. Sure. Um, so we didn't have to change any of the code. We didn't have to uh, model any of the any of that stuff. Uh, we just give it give it more data. Um, so stuff stuff like that is, has been uh, yeah a lot a lot of fun watching watching it actually learn how to deal with these these situations. So Nick, while they're testing the softwares and everything, this drone is going up down sometimes maybe uh, doing some things that are unpredictable. How does that reflect in uh, your job over the past two week, two months? Well, um, that was one of the important jobs that I started with was how are we going to keep it from crashing, right? Um, early on in, in the training process, it was fixed between two cables, two fixed posts. So it, it could fly up and down. It had a little bit of forward and back. You know, it could drift around a little bit to find and learn. And so I my good comparison is when I started it was probably around like a two to three year old right it knows how to how to walk right it knows how to how to stay balanced it's it needs to learn how to run and not fall over right because that that's yeah. the goal um so I sat around throwing out different ideas of how we can um make it so that it doesn't crash and burn right so I came up with basically two zip lines that we've got set up uh, with um, off-shelf, or mostly off-shelf components, a few custom, and uh, fall lanyards so the lanyards can now retract. So I, I, my other concern was like if it's just on a cable and it's flying around, that then the cable would fall into a propeller and that, that wouldn't be good either. Yeah. They're a couple hundred dollars a piece. Yep. So uh, I came up with you know retractable fall lanyards, um, and we modified those a little bit to where they work the way we want them to. Because we wanted to, but well, I'm not too worried about that. We're not yeah. using them for for safety of people anymore. So, um, but yeah, that was my my concern was keeping it uh, from being able to hit the ground, and unfortunately, we've proven that it works so <laughs> yeah yeah I mean that's all part of learning right you want to have uh, training wheels and uh, you know baby proof and all that kind of stuff it's a similar idea just like let it let it make mistakes and learn from them um, as opposed to trying to uh, yeah prevent it from as opposed to making those mistakes and, and crashing and mm -hmm. we have had a couple crashes but uh, for the most part we've, we've been able to avoid them with that, that kind of system yeah I think I heard somewhere you you're not really flying drones unless you until you crashed one <laughs> right right <laughs> Sounds, sounds about right. I crashed uh, one fatally. I got it repaired by DJI and uh, a couple times non-fatally. So yep. you, your crashes, any fatal crashes or? Uh, I mean, we've definitely had some that require intense repair. Yeah. 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 yeah I think we have a few broken arms, uh, broken propellers. Uh, I think, I think the worst case was when it, uh, it crashed and, and because it was, uh, uh, this guy, as the propeller stops spinning, there's a lot of inertia in there and it feeds power back into the power supply. Uh, so like the crash not only destroyed uh, parts of the drone, but it actually destroyed the power supply as well. So now we've like modified, uh, modified that to prevent it from happening again. Uh, yeah, the frequency of crashes has been decreasing over still, time, still decreasing. locally. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also like, just to interject for a second here, like it's worth noting why we're developing a drone for this why would why we design a drone for this application rather than like a, like a gantry type printer yeah let's um, 
specifically versus a 3D concrete printer yeah. just because yeah. of the audience. It's so different. You yeah, guys yeah. kind of uh, are very different from that, but you're also doing material deposition, so it's uh, semi-parallel. So in contrast specifically to that, uh, right. how do you guys compete, compare? Hope yeah. in the future what you expect it to be like, uh, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the main, uh, the main thing is that uh, because... So this material, if we try to if we try to pump it, for example, uh, we have to put in a ton a ton of uh, a lot more water uh, to make it pumpable, then a lot more accelerants, all the drying chemicals. So there's a lot of issues with actually trying to get it pumpable, um, and so instead we're doing a pick and place. So it, it we kind of short circuit those all those trade offs. Uh, the material can already be quite dry when we're putting it into the wall. It's still wet, but it can be it can be quite dry, um, and so then. Then we need more of a pick and place motion mm -hmm. rather than kind of like the slow and steady gantry uh, on like a standard 3D printer. Um, and so, I mean, we did look at a bunch of different uh, systems, gantries and cranes and rovers, uh, and just found that the uh, yeah the drone is the lowest cost. Uh, it's easy to deploy, so we don't have to set up a you know we don't have to have a crane to set up our gantry. Uh, some some of these uh, systems require. Um, we don't have to have perfectly flat. Uh, area around the around the build uh it can be it can be actually even our first build is build is probably going to be on a on a relatively sloped site um so like those are those are constraints that that wouldn't fit with like most of the the gantries um and yeah we can we can deploy our current drone can be deployed in like half an hour by one person uh so that's like definitely not uh yeah that, that definitely faster than most of the other the dryness of, of the material you mentioned is a big one because uh, yeah. pumping through a hose is a huge challenge that leads to all kinds of trouble. Sometimes they need to smash the hose with sledgehammers to get right. the material up. Sure. And being able to have the material drier Holds is advantageous because then it uh, cures stronger. So yeah, it cures stronger. It's uh, it's much easier to work with. Like you're not. It's actually much closer to the more traditional mixes. So there's a lot better data on it. You're not kind of going way off onto the extreme end uh, on the material science side. Uh, like from day one, we can use proven materials. Um, I mean, we're definitely looking at pushing those materials further uh, in other ways, like adding more insulation and compressive strength, tensile strength, reducing uh, seismic uh, reinforcements that are necessary. Uh, so we definitely have plans to, to move in the material science side, but on day zero, we don't have to worry about that. Um, we have a system that works. While these guys are working on the software and the hardware, uh, what's the Habitat project you got going on you're kind of working on? lubricating that process yeah yeah so we've been working with habitat now for a couple months and we're hopeful to build a, a house starting you know probably middle of this summer maybe a little bit later um just a single you know, 900 square foot single story two bedroom house uh, a few blocks from our studio which is super nice uh, and they've given us you know a lot of freedom in, in designing kind of the facade and the layout so we get to experiment a little bit with unique ways to deploy the earth on the outside uh, and then some uh, built-ins and so forth that make our you know, earth a particularly attractive product. You know, you can go in, you can build your countertops, your built-in mm -hmm. benches, and, and you get these, like, big value adds with, like, little cost at all. And they have, like, a unique, strong feel. Um, we're also looking at using hempcrete for this first house, and that gets us to a co-compliant place for uh, insulative uh, needs. Yeah. Uh, we haven't done that yet, but... Um, you know, I got good faith from, from those companies that they'll, they'll send a crew out, they'll work with us, you know, they'll, they'll go through the entire process and make sure it works out, so. Yeah. One thing I was going to add um, with the using the drone over, like, any kind of pumping system or 3D gantry, 
our power consumption is yeah. way less than what a concrete printer, and especially, I mean, we're less than what even the pump is. Right. Um, Roughly five times less, less, right? Like, um, yeah. four or five times? I think, I think compared to the pump, we're, we're like, comparable right now. Uh, so, like, our, like, prototype stage, like, with the drone flying really slowly and safely, uh, we're at about the same uh, energy usage per kilogram moved as just a, a mortar pump. Gotcha. And it's very mobile. I mean, you could probably fit the whole system in here, even with the bed set up and the shower. And the bathroom. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah, it fits in a small area. Yeah, it's eight, eight, eight by 18 inches. Yeah. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. It'd be hard to get it through that door. <laughs> yeah. We <laughs> <laughs> can rebuild it in here. Yeah. Yeah. But generally speaking, the, the, the setup time and the, and the time to, uh, to, to break it down are going to be considerably less than than a larger printer. But so. the, the energy cost is definitely, definitely worth mentioning because it, it does seem kind of counterintuitive at first that a drone would be an energy efficient way to, to move anything around, right? It just seems like flight is, is, a, is not an efficient way to do things. But I think one, a couple of things that, that kind of help the intuition. One is that pumping mortar, like there's a huge amount of friction and a lot of mass you're pushing through that, those, those hoses. Um, and so like there, yeah, there's a lot of energy to do that. Uh, but then also for the printer itself, I mean, they often weigh many tons, uh, if not like 10, 20 tons. Uh, and so moving that around uh, takes energy and like slowing it down, stopping it, uh, like that requires a huge amount of energy. Whereas we're using something that weighs 100 pounds to move something light. So there's just way less overhead uh, in, the, in the material, it's, uh, or in the, in the robot itself, right? Mm-hmm. It's like uh, the energy efficiency of riding a bike with one person in it versus like driving a bus with one person in it, right? I mean, there's like so much extra mass uh, for for just carrying around that, that little bit that you're trying to, to build into the wall. Yeah, I'm eager to see a house built with the drone, uh, yeah, or yeah. a wall built yeah. with the drone soon. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely a top, top priority. <laughs> yeah. Well, even because we've also been asked about, like, well, why not just use, like, a crane or something like that to take in place? But, again, it's, it's the mass of the crane that you've got to start, stop, move around all the time. So you've, you've got tons of steel that you're moving to move a small object. It mm-hmm. just, yeah. to us, this kind of made no sense. Well, to them, I, and I got on board and I agreed. So, <laughs> so once you're satisfied with the crane's, or sorry, the drone's flight pattern AI, will the, you'll have a joystick to control the gravity? The, the entire thing uh, ultimately will be autonomous. Mm-hmm. So uh, it will be able to see the, the pile of material uh, and we kind of tell it where, where the pile of material is. It can be autonomously picking and placing. Uh, there's cameras on the bottom uh, of the drone to map the entire site so it can see kind of where's the, uh, what's the state of the wall right now, what's the state of the wall as it should be, where do I need to be placing more material, mm-hmm. uh, and then where do I need to be tamping uh, in order to kind of get it you know, exactly into the shape, shape that's necessary. Uh, so yeah, the long term, uh, I mean, in the next two years, say, it'd be fully autonomous. Uh, this summer, there'll certainly be some some uh, human labor involved. Uh, we just want to get a build done, get through the entire process. Uh, yeah, proving yeah. the build system separate from, from the electronics is, is important. And yeah. just to give a little bit of context in terms of the timeline, um, because we've talked a lot about how the drone is learning, and it, you know, it learns kind of like a human learns, and it takes time. But uh, things are actually moving pretty quickly. I mean. About a year ago, roughly, um, actually not even, less than a year ago, we finished assembling the drone. I mean, about a year ago, Jane yeah. and I were like gluing carbon fiber together and, and, yeah. and, and soldering wires, which is not, you know, typically in, in, in the like, marketing job description, but <laughs> I was able to fill in that, that, 
that gap. Um, and then, you know, we started training the drone, flying the drone probably in June, July of last year. And uh, we had a few setbacks, and like, like the, the, again, we we crashed more often than early on. Right, right. So it would it'd be down for a couple weeks, and so anyhow, it, was that before you had the pulley system? Uh, we we had a different system that wasn't as effective. You were always <laughs> it was a smaller area. Yeah, it's always it's always been uh yeah in training wheels in a in a harness yeah. of some kind. Yeah. But but th yeah, that being said, uh, it just the the, the reinforcement uh, learning model just wasn't as as developed. So it would kind of make it would be, it would fly more erratically. Uh, so, so when we made a mistake, it was like a bigger mistake, essentially. Right. Um, and then there were just other, you know, kind of kinks to work out in the system. Bottom line, you know, between let's say June and uh, you know whatever December of last year, it was basically just learning how to fly, supporting its own weight, and and then and and, and, um, and like small kind of like placeholder payloads that we would attach to it, like a piece of block of wood or something. Right. Which um, progressively got heavier. So progressively heavier, and it became pro progressively more stable. Uh, and then, so, so that was kind of the progress last year. And then this spring, um, you know, things kind of, kind of kind of sped up. The drone uh, was achieving much more stable flight. And then about a month ago, uh, the drone for the first time picked up a, a, a chunk of the building material mm -hmm. and, and moved it about, you know, 20 feet, uh, you know, kind of simulating what what would happen on a, on a construction site where it would pick a piece up from the pile, go to where the wall is supposed to be, drop it, and then, and then of course, repeat that process. So that, again, just to give context of how far we've come um, from you know putting it together last summer to now now we're able to move the material and then yeah the next milestone is move move material ten times in a row to get a wall that's you know a foot high and then and so on so um, you know we we have a lot of work to do but but uh, we have you know we're we're all pretty excited I think about the progress that, that we've made yeah so that's a good description of what's uh, occurred to get to this point um, and a decent amount of where you guys are at right now well, how does this look. Well, I guess we'll start with you and then push down towards Zach uh, in the future, like whether it be if you want to talk about six months from now or a year from now or ten years from now, whatever uh, gives you what you have the most clarity of, I guess, or whatever you prefer for each of you, however you want to answer that question, whatever time length you want to set it for the future, what do you picture? Sure. Well, since, since again, from a more of a marketing standpoint and, and uh, not having to worry about the AI, because that's, that's the hard part, so I'll save that for, <laughs> save that for Zach. Uh, but uh, I, I think it's fair to say that uh, what we want to do in simple terms is, um, you know, really knock this first uh, project out of the park and uh, build a home that is, you know, visually appealing and, and, and comfortable to be in and kind of show people the potential of the material. A lot of people, you know, for example, people who grew up in the Southwest, United States, like they know that Adobe Homes can be can be really luxurious and, and, and attractive, um, but we really want to kind of, you know, s set that bar high uh, from the get go. And um, you know, we have a waiting list right now on our website that people can go and, and join. Uh, I guess I'll plug it: liveterran.com, T-E-R-R-A-N.com. Um, but we want to do something more. Link in the description. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, but we want to we, we want to perhaps add, add some more tiers to that and and. and Really, we want to we want to put uh, our product out there and, and, and show people, hey, this is an this is a, an affordable, you know, high quality, you know, three D printed home that you can live in, and we want to we want to uh, show customer demand. So that's is a it a three D printed home? Or are you putting yourselves in that category? I mean, we're splitting hairs. Autonomously built, three D printed, uh, you know. Yeah, it depends on who you're talking to. The fastest way to get them to get them to the, sure. the end point. Yeah. The end result is what is the same though, definition of 3D print. Right. A step file. <laughs> which, Using a step file is fine. Which, 
Yeah. Similar, I mean, we're going to... I'm not sure what format we're planning on transferring. Yeah, STL file. Uh, your data to... Voxel Maps versus... Yeah, it'll be a Voxel Map. Yeah. I think you should differentiate yourselves and not be 3D printers because the other printers, they look like 3D printers. they got a gantry system, right, right. XYZ motors, stepper motors, and... Right. Well, there's definitely definitely not uh, definitely no G code involved. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like an iterative process. Uh, it has to use computer vision to see where the wall is, and and uh, uh, I think yeah. that's the biggest yeah. difference for me is autonomous versus G code. It's yeah. like yeah. it is a reactive building system. It's seeing what's happening and and, and making it to an image or to it, a form. And it also it also makes it a lot easier for us to get kind of from zero to one and get the first the first house built because. We can build one. We can build slowly. Uh, if the drone is is like not as uh, uh, whatever, it can't fly really fast. We can still build slowly. Also, like as far as the the impact hammer goes and tamping it into position, um, if we tamp it a little bit too much in one area, we can tamp it in from the other direction or in other areas. Mm -hmm. Like so, it's very flexible. Um, yeah, it's hard to make kind of the catastrophic er errors uh, like you get in three D printing where uh, right like the, the nozzle goes slightly off and the whole thing is spraying concrete everywhere plastic everywhere I'm realizing for the first time the tamper is not for the ground it's for the wall so it's, it has to go on an angle like yes. yeah. Yeah. yeah both yeah. down both down yeah. and to the side yeah. yeah both down and to the side and maybe other angles you decide to print yeah. at or yeah. build at right especially if we start Stuck doing like some archways yeah. or something like that yeah so. yeah. yeah we're excited to do more than just more than just the walls mm -hmm. what's your near term Nick with Sky, we're breaking it down, right? Whatever amount of future we want. Yeah. So, um... Thanks for putting us back on track. <laughs> <laughs> we can get off track a lot, that's fine. Uh, happens all the time. So, I, I guess uh, one thing that we talked about early on uh, when I started here and something that I've got all kinds of visions running around my head is automating the mixing process, right? So, um, while Zach's working on uh, curtailing the hammer or the, uh, what we're calling the hammer, the, our sculpting tool right now. Yeah. Um, I, and there might be some more iterations that I do to that. Um, another design was that we've talked about or maybe multiple hammers for different angles, one for hitting the sidewall, one for packing it down. I mean, You'll have more iterations of everything. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. definitely. Next I mean, and then, I mean, the fourth generation drone, we've talked about that. But right. I think one thing that's going to perfect everything about what we're doing is uh, some sort of a uh, intelligent mixing system, right? That Absolutely. As it have sensors in there that know the right consistency, because we are building with natural building materials, mm -hmm. right? We got clay. Uh, some sort of a binder, straw, um, other materials also work, but then some sort of an aggregate. They're all natural. They all have different moisture contents, depending on the time of year, depending on if it's been raining today or not. So you can't just say, okay, add two cups of water, um, in which we found out, you know, definitely over all of our mixes and trials. And, you know, it's kind of an art right now where you just keep adding a little bit of water, you look at it, you feel it, you see how it acts how the material reacts and you know when it's good. I would like to figure out and come up with different uh, recipes, so to speak, but have it programmed and ready and mixed. Because yeah. we've also talked about different like layers as you go up higher in the wall that it's not, you know, we could go with a lighter uh, mix. and Being able to sense good. Yeah. And being able to mix at scale. Right. I mean, and then, those are both the critical for earth building. And then a... a more of a kind of a standard size uh, 
presentation to the drone, right? So, you know, if we kind of extrude the material out somehow and present this more of a standardized ball that, you know, make it easier for you to program, right? Because you're not going to have to, you know, look, well, I mean, obviously then once you figure it out, but the, the drone's sure, not going to have to sure. fly around and be like, oh, there's a good size chunk, right? Sure, or, sure. you know, um, so it can just go back more to like a, a pickup position that's more consistent. That's my vision. Just real quick, I think it's also, one thing we haven't mentioned yet is, is that, again, looking farther ahead in the future, our biggest cost savings are going to come from doing larger scale developments where one of the huge benefits of the material is that you can literally excavate the clay subsoil on the building site. Most of the U.S. has, has suitable clay for building uh, these kind of walls. So what, what you're what Nick's that, talking about... A, the automated uh, bobcat that... Right. Yeah, there you go. That <laughs> hasn't started yet. <laughs> Someone else might figure that part out, some other company. But, but regardless, you know, what, what you're talking about, Nick, it, it, just, it just amplifies... Um, you know, the benefit of being able to source it on site and then having a mixing system that is high throughput and, and is able to compensate for those variations across building sites. Right. So it, all of that is driving towards the lowest possible cost material. Because, yeah, and what we've talked about too um, is as a team, right, that we might have different compounds or whatever uh, material is easily available at that job site, right? So the straw could be replaced with hemp or some other sort of fiber that is cheap and easy to obtain at the local site. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having all that knowledge and being able to scale, like you were saying, you know, get scale it up for however many homes. I mean, we've got to make the, you know, if the mixer can keep up with six drones building six homes at the same time, that would be ideal, right? I guess from, from my, uh, my department, my area is uh, kind of all in on, on the first build. Um, still holding the future in mind, like thinking about, you know, if we're going to do one this year and there's going to be a blend of humans and machines on this house, what does a group of 10 next year that's mostly machine look like? Mm -hmm. So it's like kind of holding those, those two things in, in mind, but day to day right now is a lot of uh, just detailing um, how our wall system interacts with uh, standard trades, um, reducing the pain in those points where we trade off as much as possible, preferably to the point that they're like, this is as normal as could be for me and the rafters go up and everything feels 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 right to them um so finding those those trade-offs and then look at the deeper future it's like you know how do we start thinking about structural steel roofs or you know lower concrete you know foundation solutions or earth slab on grade instead of concrete slab on grade like the other things that we can begin to automate then we can begin to cut like deeper into the cost of the home it can't stop at the wall so you know how do we automate a whole lot more or how do we like reduce the number of trades on the site by you know, structural steel roofing is a good example. You know, they it ends up replacing the need for framing, underlayment, water sealing. So you're, you're already getting down to like one material instead of four mm -hmm. um, from one example. Uh, the earth and slab on grade, same deal. The machine can pick and place it. Uh, there's a precedence of that floor system being very successful. Uh, it's almost on parity with concrete as a replacement. Uh, it's far cheaper, uh, far less carbon. So just, yeah, holding, holding in mind those other things that get us to a truly... Um, a truly affordable house, crossing that point of like where 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 we beat stick by a penny or a dollar. <laughs> How do we get to that point? It's it's hitting a lot of things across the build. Um, so yeah, I think, but, but in the very immediate future, uh, getting in uh, the permits in the next couple weeks. That's kind of like front front of my mental space. We pulled the first permit for an earthen structure of this technique um, for one on my property, 
want to build that first. But it's it's nice to have gone through the process of the building department so they know what's coming. Yeah. Um, and they proved it. Yeah, yeah. I, we've got a good working relationship here. We've uh, we did the first um, probably the first. You got a few permits at once. Well, yeah. So they split that out. My house, I pulled, I pulled a number of them, but one of them was for uh, converting my first tiny home um, into an accessory dwelling unit with a, an earthen addition, and then a second earthen addition off the back of my main primary structure. Have you had other circumstances where you tried to permit a earthen home? Yeah, that's what I was gonna, gonna bring up. We um, we had a permit for uh, an earthen block house here about a decade ago. The, the structure was never finished, but we went through that that entire process and ran some gear from um, their factory farm. At the time i know the names changed a couple times but they kind of like that early eco village tool set company um did a lot of interesting work and we had one of their cd presses so zach and i are uh, used to kind of play with cutting edge earth tech yeah the permitting is a big challenge in any like innovative construction solution yeah well here it's like we we work with the the primary uh, engineer on the code relevant to cob building in the mm -hmm. u.s so we've had engineers to stamp the work from kind of the beginning. Uh, we've got a new regional engineer that, that we're kind of spinning up to, uh, a little bit more familiar with the area and code and, and, and just in the same offices as us. So there's like, you know, name, name carries over. So yeah, there's uh, we, we put a lot into the, the engineers for, for stamping and covering the, the earth system. Uh, one thing I think we should jump on here too, I've been thinking about the kind of closing an NSF grant, which is on the immediate future for us. Um, I'll let Zach jump into that in, in addition to his other updates, but yeah. In the immediate term, get habitat built, um, and then start looking at like blocks of houses in the coming year. Talk more about the grant. Let Zach's uh, future prediction be more abstract. Oh sure, sure. Uh, so uh, the linear hammer that's come up a couple times now is kind of is it, you know we, the, the grant's broken into five things. Um, four of them are done at this point, or done enough. But the hammer's where we're at, mm -hmm. um, uh, and that's basically can the machine use a tool to shape a wall is it it's where when it and i think it's maybe like one of the most radical parts of this whole project it's like you know learn flight all these other things that like you know you could, you could argue other people are like experimenting in those in those realms but to physically touch the exterior world with a drone is a pretty unique development and that's the last step in the grant it's to you know carry that hammer and tool wield with a, you know a flying robot that's interacting with something a foreign body it's almost automated pottery yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah it'd be much easier if we could yeah. spin the walls, though. And sculpt them. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. There you go. I think it's just just sculpting is always a good word for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah the process is, is does feel very similar to like what you would imagine a kindergartner doing with clay. I mean, play doh. Play doh. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, yeah. You get a rough shape and you make it more like what you want until it's how you like it. Well, yeah. and that's kind of like where we go with the impact hammer, right? Um, it we try to mimic as much as possible what works right so uh tools that's traditionally used in like cob building you take a board and you just kind of smack it or just you use your hands and you smack it like if you just start pushing on it it doesn't react but the the red uh the impact motion gets the clay to flow and start um the sculpting process which mm -hmm. um i mean like the with we have we've done testing with it um handheld right so right now it's like a, a handheld unit it's got trigger on it so you can move it back and forth across the uh, the sample walls that we built and i mean the first time you saw it work out there you're like wow uh, yeah. i mean the, yeah. the amount more of, like the third time i saw it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But that time was good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, actually working. Yeah, yeah. Not, not just like work for a couple times and then destroy. But. Yeah. Well, I think, like, in thinking of the linear hammer in particular, um, so in Cobb and everything construction, you have, like, this tendency. Uh, we were talking about, like, the wetness of the mix earlier. Um, humans, when working the material, tend to, like, edge toward wetter because it's easier on the hands. Yeah, right. Um, we're able to apply greater force with these other tools and then use drier mixes. Again, mm -hmm. that makes it stronger for a number of reasons. Concrete's got its reasons for it. For us, it's shrinkage of total height of structure and cracking reduction. So those two things, and then those are kind of like out the gate obvious, and then there's dry time. You know, cob, you can start working the surface you know, a week or two in, um, and you can cut the dry time down significantly by, by using less water in the, in the mixing process. Um, and then I think there's another thing that we haven't totally quantified, but using the linear hammer as we are, I think there are some properties where our material is starting to, will likely start acting more like rammed earth. Right. So, you know, I would expect, we say unconfirmed, that we will end up with something that's um, like higher PSI strength because it's somewhere now in between cob and rammed earth uh, because we're able to apply force in a very articulate way. Um, without formwork, so you know, typically a formwork in the in the uh, rammed earth solutions, but that's a whole other step or a whole other byproduct of waste if you're not reusing them. Um, so yeah, the last bit of that grant, making that hammer hit the wall <laughs> and keep that drone somewhere in uh, a sane flight path. Yeah, yeah, very we're cool. close. So, what's your future vision for Terran? Yeah, so I guess kind of walk up to it. So the I get. You know, next year the goal is to be able to be cost competitive with uh, custom custom home builders uh, in, in kind of our area, uh, and then a year or two later, uh, be cost competitive with production home builders. Uh, so that, that's kind of like yeah, short term, short term, medium term, long term. I'm I'm super excited about bringing the the cost of construction down uh, so low, uh, and and not just uh, for kind of affordable housing. I mean, I think affordable housing is definitely an important uh, important thing to to important problem to to be working mm -hmm. towards. Uh, but I'm also excited about, uh, you know, once once the material is is can be deployed uh, uh, cheaply, like what else can we build, right? I mean, uh, when when something becomes abundant, you don't just do the exact same thing you've done in the past. Like you get new new things become possible, new lifestyles uh, become possible, uh, problems that you didn't realize you had you can solve. Um, so that that's long term where where I'm really excited, and, and I think it's it's hard to talk specifically about about any of them, but I think as as we as we get to the point where the costs are, are low enough for people to explore, uh, I think we'll see a, a you know an abundance of, of different of different options. I, I think right now uh, most people, if they want to do something different, uh, just can't. It's just too expensive to take any risks. Um, you know, you can't you can't afford to, to build your house in a slightly different way because you have to worry about your resale value and like the the mortgage and all. You know, there's all these forces that are kind of pushing everyone towards the same kind of house, mm -hmm. uh, the same living in the same kind of way. Um, but, but I mean, we've got, we've gotten quite a few people interested, for example, in like family compounds, um, you know, where it's like them and their parents and their brother and like some of their friends. And, um, and so I think in places like that, it's just like a starting point. Um, if, if you can get the cost down, you can start experimenting in that way. Uh, and it's not as big of a risk. Um, if it doesn't work out, you haven't, you haven't lost as much. Um, yeah, and you can you can always like tear it down and try something else if if whatever you didn't like how uh, how it worked out the first time. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of interesting directions there. 
Yeah, I guess that kind of leads to maybe an interesting thought experiment of what if the cost per square foot was $10 a square foot for a custom custom home? What happens? What does that world look like? Right, yeah, I mean, I think, I think one is uh, uh, make it, makes it more possible to start like new cities, right? So people are already doing like very large developments, um, but I, I think there's, there's a growing interest in charter cities, uh, startup cities, uh, and I think the more you can bring that, those costs down, uh, the easier it is to get capital, to finance those kinds of things. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the U.S. could definitely use more, more cities, uh, more like kind of European style cities, like different, whatever they are, like experiment uh, in, in that domain. Uh, yeah, I'm super excited about that. I mean, I think there's, there's certain ways that, we, that we're particularly interested in, in building, like uh, because the material uh, reduces the, the uh, it, helps, it helps dampen sound. We can actually get kind of uh, high density housing that doesn't come with the drawbacks uh, of like the the lack of privacy that you have in most uh, most high density housing. Um, so yeah, I'm excited about building building cities or, or neighborhoods that uh, yeah are high density but still really high quality of life. Uh, yeah, walkable. I mean, there's all, all the kind of things that uh, yeah like that, that improve the quality of life. Uh, that, that we can that we can start building uh, and experimenting with and figure out figure out what works. What do you um, think? About or if you had something to jump right on. That. Yeah, yeah. I, I just just to put like terminology to to what Zach is saying is you know a lot of these ideas or, or I, I guess there's sort of an intersection between the material um, it, itself and, and and this sort of like bigger vision like architectural vision or like urban design. Um, and you know, it, it, like we're not coming up with these ideas ourselves. Like if you look, right. if, you, if you go on Google and you type in like human scale architecture, right, right. or like livable cities okay. or best cities to live in, you know, in the world, you know, obviously some of them, some people will prefer, uh, you know, to, to live in New York City with like high, in a high rise or something. But if you look at some of the cities where, where people have, you know, enjoy living there the most and have the highest quality of life, it's cities like, you know, Copenhagen. Right or 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 like uh, or like Barcelona or whatever like places where people like to visit because it's it's again it's this human scale so it's like lower rise or mid rise buildings but high density so you can walk everywhere and it just kind of so happens that this material is is very like conducive to to building that style of architecture that kind of city mm-hmm. um, and that's not really an accident because I mean kind of harkening back to like the original conversations we had like I mean Zach and Danny. Uh, worked together to start an eco-village when they were, you know, in their early 20s. And without going into, into that story, I mean, the cost Why of... Not? <laughs> well, maybe we should. Yeah, I mean... Not, not to, like, open the... It's I, all I, on the table. I'm it's all too fascinated by it. Well, suffice it, I'll let them talk about it, but just just to suffice to say that, that um, uh, you know, one of the problems in starting an eco-village is the cost of construction. Uh, but again, it, it, it comes down to this, like, what kind of quality of life do we want to have? And I think sometimes yeah, it's in, in the field of like urban planning, it's called the missing middle or again, human scale architecture. And, you know, like, like Zach mentioned, uh, soundproofing is very important when you have higher density. So now you can have, a, you know, a neighborhood where you live close to your, your neighbors and your friends and, and you can walk and see them and it's, you don't have to get in a car to drive. But you also have, you also won't hear them when they're like, whatever, yelling or, you know, their kids are crying or whatever at night. Um, fireproofing. This, this material is naturally fireproof. So unlike stick building, if you have an apartment that's made out of, you know, uh, that's, that's stick framed, um, and there's a fire, then yeah. the whole building's at risk. Or you have to spend more to, to fireproof, to put fireproofing between each unit. What happens if a seed gets in the dirt and a tree grows on your house? I was not <laughs> enough water to sustain it. Okay. Yeah. Um, there are 
techniques where they'll like have seed mixed in you'll see like grass come off mm -hmm. the wall and they do it but it turns it's 90 degrees and start trying to find sun and then tensile strength in the roots i'm doubtful but <laughs> yeah, hopeful. I, I wouldn't i wouldn't bet on it but yeah you'll, you'll see it in some uh natural construction for sure mm -hmm. yeah only only if you're doing it intentionally you're like have it way wetter yeah yeah, really yeah. Wet are there any uh like ten dollars square foot uh what would how would the world change with ten dollars square foot construction a lot of free time. I think that's like, if you boil down, we talked about a lot when we were kind of any of these pursuits and, and we I'm glad to talk to eco village in this way too. Um, but the intention is like, how do you cut, keep cutting cost of living to the point that you have free time to deploy? Um, and that's like whatever pursuit you choose, it just frees that up. So what's the, uh, how did the eco village start? Uh, that was, Right after we met in the, the cooperatives, purchased uh, like two and a quarter acres. Wanted to like start experimenting in this way at a larger scale, um, but kind of keeping the thread that we keep now where we like, do it above the board. Um, started rezoning. We, the property is like uh, eight or 10 blocks from here. Uh, it's been rezoned now for a cooperative house of 30 and 10 um, independent homes. Wow. Um, that's different than I would have rezoned it now. I think if we were to do it now, it'd probably be two blocks of two five unit condos but okay. that that wasn't an option uh, 10 years ago back then you were fighting so many things to do anything cooperative you had to have like a homeowners association to like get insurance and then wrap that in like a land trust there's like all these steps that wow. kept you from being cooperative it's easier now I, from my understanding yes I, I haven't worked in that world directly in a long time specifically for bloomington or? uh these were like nationally deployed strategies at the time wow. so we brought in consultants from um like Earth Haven Eco Village to kind of like talk through the process of how do you cooperate uh, and mitigate liability. You know, it's like if someone gets, you know, their hand cut on a garden tool, but now they can sue a 30 bedroom house. You know, it just changes the litigation process a lot because there's a lot more on the line when everybody's mm -hmm. tied to it. But, but the, the whole point of that was like to have a, a community of families together. Um, it's like a mile and a half from downtown Bloomington. Um, but the same kind of seed to it, like how do we build, you know, affordable housing? We started with earth and construction there. Uh, we went through the full um, planned unit development process. So it's a full rezone of the property to get it to where it could have all those features. Uh, and right now, Zach uh, uh, sold it onto a member that's still adjacent to the property, and he's holding it for uh, Bloomington Cooperative Living, who's uh, actually they're meeting over the next few months, looking from what I've heard uh, at like a you know, $3 million kind of investment into, I, I'm guessing they'll start with the cooperative house. BCL is a Bloomington cooperative living and they have, uh, I think they own three of their homes now. They own two of their homes now. I think they, they maintain four in Bloomington. Well, so you started the thing and then you were able to exit? Uh, I, so I always, I had a feeling like, Founders staying in Eco Villages has always made me a little nervous. Okay. Um, so I, there was a little bit of me that, it's sad I left. It's, you know, I, I still have, like, tied to that project, but I always felt like five years was a, a good commitment to it. And I was there four years, nine months. You were there a little bit less than that, but, but yeah, pretty close to the same. Close. Did you guys start a new religion there? No, I didn't get that far, but one of our members certainly did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not yeah. certain, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I mean, all the, the astrological maps and foreign worlds and books he was writing, yeah, yeah. he probably got there. I'm sure to attract some creative folks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean... People just trying out interesting stuff. And I'm really glad that the, the group that's working on it now, there's there's a couple groups interested in it, but the, the BCL group in particular is, uh, they've got a strong board now, and they seem to be like pushing it in the right direction. And they're like 
reasonable about timelines. You know, they just bought another big house and re rented it. Um, and I think they're in that now. So they're, they're on track to, to build the, the financial history to, to make something happen there. It just takes a long time. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah. So you've been into housing for a long time and you consider like community developments. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If yeah. you had a hundred of these drones, how would you deploy them? I mean, it probably wouldn't be too dissimilar from the cities. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think building building out big uh, big developments, big neighborhoods. I think the um, yeah, particularly finding finding developers to work with that uh, would want to be doing the yeah human scale developments. And you have uh, some development stuff. planning experience now, so like where to put things in or like what to. Definitely learned. Definitely learned the hard way certain things uh, on like yeah how to run sewer lines in the efficient yeah. way and where to put houses. Yeah, that was the biggest pressure in that project. Stuff like that, yeah. Utility infrastructure mm -hmm. was. Uh, we were just too young to, you know, get scared by two or three hundred thousand dollars. When now I'm like, you know, twenty grand a lot <laughs> is buildable. Yeah, it's a different world. Yeah. So what lessons did you learn about that for like, about the electrical and plumbing in the communities and how to make get the most cost effective? Well, I think that's something Zach actually talks about this a lot uh, in the the building a city from scratch, you know, one of the attractive things, like the only way you ever imagine getting to $10 a square foot, uh, it isn't deploying by materials in a single family house. It is, you know, sharing walls with 30 mm -hmm. units, but then like completely reimagining how sewer and water comes onto the property, doing it elegantly or doing something that hasn't been seen yet. Um, a lot of our building strategy like falls on that. It's like no one's, no one's succeeded in deploying this material, but there are other strategies for, for water sewer that you can pull from other cultures where it's like, it's cheaper and and sharing and, and, and all that stuff. Yeah, I think I think getting to ten dollars a square foot, like there, are mo don't remember the the specific the specific cities, uh, but like I think in most in most cities in the U.S., uh, I would guess it would be hard to get down to to ten dollars a square foot just on the utilities alone. Like not yeah. even the walls, just or the, the ceiling, just getting yeah. getting a sewer connection. Yeah. Getting I mean electrical is not too bad. Uh, all the all the plumbing just like the required like just meeting the code the minimal code for um for all of your utilities uh yeah adds yeah up. just a hypothetical yeah yeah i mean honestly the only people is that including land i mean is the land yes i mean because that's the other that's part about part. i mean you can't buy a lot especially in bloomington i mean the only place right, i could right. even imagine people to have gotten close to that 10 or 20 dollar mark in the last two decades would be like i don't know dancing around eco village when someone converts a bus on shared land, you know, and they're living, they're like Burma in, so it's kind of like a house, but it costs almost nothing to build. Like some of those stories, there's like kernels of truth to them if you take out time as a part of the cost of, of creation of space. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's radically rethinking like planning, zoning, systems, all of it has to be on the table if you're gonna like push anywhere near like truly radical numbers. There, there is kind of like. Like you start at ten, we always challenge ourselves with fifty. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like something that we haven't quantified that I think is hard to quantify that is 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 sort of like you could make it, you know, you can make an X Y graph or you can make it multi dimensional, but basically, you know, one axis is like cost per square foot sure. to build, and the other axis is how nice your house is. Um, and I think what we're trying to optimize for, like, so at the extreme end, you can live in a uh, like a tent. Uh, and, and, and I'm not saying that like, like, as, as like an insult, because like there are companies out there like that manufacture yurts, right? It's essentially, I mean, it's a and it's, it's often a hundred thousand dollars per tent to deploy these solutions right. to homeless people. It could, yes, it is. It could be. Well, they, I, I mean, and, but just you know, in fairness, like there's, a, I think I just saw people a like profit. Yeah, 
There's there's a startup called I think it's called uh, Jute Jute Jute, Jute. Or maybe Jute. Jute. I think it maybe Jute. Yeah. But they're yeah they're essentially trying to do this. They're like they have like ex Tesla engineers, you know, designing like the world's essentially like the best tent. It's like the best aluminum poles and, and the best canvas. And it's like yes, if you do that, like you will you can get a very cheap dwelling. But then we're talking about the opposite of soundproofing, right? The opposite of fireproofing. And, you know, well, so it's not gonna you can't build that uh, legally. You can't, it's not, it's and, not a legal dwelling. Right, good compliance is expensive. That's yeah. another dimension, yeah. So there's the dimension of what's possible because of laws, what's possible because of materials. Um, so I, I guess where, you know, where we see ourselves is, you know, really optimizing at that, somewhere on the graph where people are saying, I want the nicest home I can get for my money. And like, I'm willing to spend, like, maybe I want to get a house that's 20% less than, than, than market rate. Like, I do want, there, obviously, people are very price sensitive when it comes to home purchase, but they're also sensitive to, they want a nice home. So, so we're really, we're somewhere on that graph where we're saying, like, we want to give, we want to make a really nice home for a substantially less price. We're not trying to make the world's absolute cheapest house, because that is a tent, you know. Uh, so just just to kind of put that out there, but I think that's yeah. it's, it's I guess considering. that kind of leads into the question, I ask this of a lot of concrete printing companies. I know I saw a stat somewhere that 80% of home purchasing decisions are done by women. So uh, are there women that would be eager to go live in a Adobe home? We just had one last week. We had, someone just signed up for our, our, our waiting list, uh, mm -hmm. pur purchased a spot on the waiting list. Um, they're, they're a couple down in, uh, they actually live in Louisville, so a couple hours from here. Um, well, I, think, I think also like in, in the Southwest, uh, where there's more of a history of this, uh, I mean, there are a lot of people, couples, families building in, oh, in Adobe homes. Like, well, specifically like this woman, so it's a couple, the sure. wife was from the Southwest okay. and she was like, yes, like I'm this, I want this house. Right. <laughs> so that reason. proving your st statistically, you know, falling, falling in line with that statistic, but then yes. I'm curious to know how many of the waitlist signups were for female versus male. Just this like, yeah. an interesting stat. <laughs> yeah. Tiny home certainly reaches both uh, as in interest and uh, my three pretty construction. My audience is like ninety percent male. Is that because it's mostly people imagining use of tools versus? Yeah, I think if I was doing more house tours and stuff, it might be more equal. Sure, if that makes sense. The way I look at the whole three D printed housing, you know, the market for three D printed homes is that no company has achieved true product market fit yet and i think i think uh there's a lot of interest there, there's a lot of interest in the technology which again skews male um and, and i think i do think it's as simple as what you're describing like when more of your videos are hey this is an amazing beautiful home with a walkthrough then you're going to see uh more interest from people who are interested in the product not the yeah, process and your description extends past 3d printed construction into every construction technology yeah, yeah. there isn't a single one that's really cheaper than traditionally yet and all these software companies reach out to me i can't stand software companies because they're just adding costs there's no way <laughs> your software is going to make it cheaper when it's a hundred thousand dollars or whatever right. <laughs> not this maybe ai software that's actually building stuff but it has to sure, do sure. something something has to move physically at some point somewhere <laughs> to build a house yeah, you're talking about like yeah, drones that survey the construction sites. Like, well, that's useful, but you know, again, you're not gonna probably not gonna reduce costs for that. You need the drone to actually build the house. And yeah, and I mean, there are utilities where you can prove that does save costs sure. in a specific right. circumstance. Oh. Maybe it's millions of dollars, but also you need to train that person to use that thing and probably put in tons of data, clean the data, and upkeep it. So, uh, I never got successful at using any software to manage my company, but I always saw where it would 
could help. <laughs> so I, I think there's probably a place for uh, the better organization of like mid-tier builders. I was never quite large enough in, in, in my tiny house building world to, to justify the expense, but I, think I can see its place in I for hate it so much is because it cements you into the system that you're using for that software, and then it's like it's much harder to change your processes. And like I'm really interested in the pace of innovation that these companies like yours that or how you're improving things, you're changing things, and maybe the whole construction process will have to be rethought. So that technology, whatever their software is, probably won't apply to your solution. I mean, that was one of the problems I had, even even in my stick-built structures, of, yeah. you know, using sheep's wool and natural oils and, you know, rain screen techniques or experimental stuff. I was, like, more likely to pull a detail from, like, a rising or video than I would be from, like, to find the answers to that stuff in sort of, like, a, a tool that's kind of laying out how the construction process works. Yeah. Tools, tools, tools. It sounds like uh, they're just skewed toward men liking the tools. Yeah, technology, nerdy stuff, I guess. Yeah. Well, for a different podcast, perhaps. But yeah. Well, I think I think the thing, you know, really the focus for us. Uh, I mean, the, I had never flown a drone before. Uh, like, uh, up until just a few weeks ago, I hadn't flown a drone smaller than like six wow. feet in diameter. Right, so like a drone was not it was not like it's not like we had drones like trying to figure out how yeah. can we use them. Uh, like the tools are definitely a means to the end, uh, you know. And, and so I think I think the end of yeah reducing reducing the cost of living, increasing the, the quality of living, uh, you know whatever we need to do to do that that's the that's the goal. It's interesting the AI like you've never really flown a drone. The AI learned how to fly the drone. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 So even even like flying a drone like most of it was me. Yeah, adjusting. Yeah, yeah uh, there's definitely a lot of adjustments at the learning phase as you're like, you're probably writing code on the fly all the time. And yeah, one well, and the the crazy thing is actually, uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of deep learning and, and neural networks have a, have a kind of uh, reputation for taking a, requiring a huge amount of data and a lot of time to train. Sure. Um, but actually, uh, with the methods that we're using, uh, it so it learned to fly stably with something like two hours of training data. Um, so yeah, like after, after being born, flying stably two, two hours later, uh, was like pretty, pretty fast. And like now even, I think we're up to something like uh, 30 to 50 hours of, of training data wow. um, to, to do what it's doing now. You know, so the more surprising parts of that to me is when, when the two of you were adding weight and it's like you couldn't add weight fast enough to mess it up after like the first couple times. Yeah, like you add- like it learned how to handle Eight or ten pounds. Yeah, so it's like a visual representation of the improvement. Yeah, just as the day yeah. went on, like adding time, more yeah. weight. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and to be clear, just in case everyone's like, "Oh, like you've only done thirty hours of training in like nine months," it's, it's because like essentially it flies for a couple of minutes and like you, you do that you do that a few times and then you have to retrain the model and like I don't want to give away whatever trade secret, but it takes a long. The, the, the computation takes a long time. So, um, I mean, most of the time is just in in figuring out. Uh, yeah, the hardware side. Like, what are we? What are we? You know, fixing it if something breaks, or right. uh, like building new tools, or uh, the actual. Especially now, the the software has gotten quite stable. Um, most of the time is is not in uh, not in the software. Like yeah. the AI. Like we, we give it new problems, it solves them. Um, actually, haven't had to really change much about the model in. Uh, Yes, six months or something. Even when we put it on the new tether system, where we yeah. have the, the lanyards retracting, right? That applied different forces on it, and it dealt with it. It, it figured it out. Uh, 
two days. Monday? What? I guess it was Monday. Um, yeah. Since it's traveling more and we got the, the tethers right and they're dragging across and all that, you know, we've got sharp rocks out there and stuff. I don't really want it shorting out and yeah. frying our power supplies. And they're supposed to be protected, but <laughs> I don't want to test it out. Debugging physical things is uh, more of the debugging yeah. than yeah, <laughs> so I think like, changing yeah. the code. Yeah, yeah we, it's just responding to like real world stuff when you have an eight foot wide machine that's swinging around in the air. Just a lot of little. I mean, uh, last week was like a, a data pin in one connector was damaged, and it just took like another day to figure out why it was uploading. Well, and a lot of times too, it's it's very different. Uh, uh, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time in more more traditional software. Uh, and there, like, it's, it's more about, I mean, you can step through every line, you can really understand it, it's doing exactly, mm -hmm. it's not doing anything that you didn't tell it to do, yeah. right? But now, uh, like, debugging, debugging a system like this and AI more generally, uh, yeah, you really have to kind of, like, get in the mind of the drone. Like, you think in terms of, like, how it's experiencing things, and um, there will actually be bugs that, uh, there are bugs in the code that it's working around. So I've, like, found bugs, fixed them and it didn't actually help because it had already found a way to deal with the bug on its own, right? So uh, that, I mean, in some ways that makes the, the software easier because it's like fixing bugs for you in, sure. in some sense, but well, on the other hand, drones it hides them. smarter than the programmer. <laughs> yeah, it kind of hides them, but like, you know, sometimes, sometimes you, you don't notice, it's hard to find the problem because it's working around it somewhat or, yeah. um, so it's just, it's a, it's, it's a fun problem, but it's a, uh, yeah, it's different than just kind of standard uh, classical software engineering. AI is so fascinating. It's uh, how does the, what are the next steps look like as you get that to build a wall? Yeah. So the the thing we're working on right now, uh, is is the the tamping tool, uh, and so we basically need to predict. Uh, given that we we have we have a wall, have a three D map of the wall, voxel map of the wall, uh, and we tamp with a certain amount of energy, uh, a certain speed, and a certain location, predict what's the wall going to look like after after that tamp. Uh, and so that kind of gets you that, that step function of, uh, yeah, if it, if it does something to the wall, what's it going to look like next? Um, and then you can kind of search through the possible places. Where should I tamp next in order to, to make the wall flat or make a wall whatever? Um, so that, that's kind of the next, the next step for the AI is, uh, yeah, the wall tamping planning. One thing I thought was really cool is how much of your equipment you built from scratch, like the tamper, the, the uh, cart. Uh, I guess it's just something you have to do when you're doing new stuff and the things you need don't exist. Yeah, yeah, when a, and a lot of times, uh, like with, with the tamper, um, you know, there are definitely off-the-shelf off the shelf solutions that we could have used, um, but building our own makes it so much easier to collect data on exactly how much energy is being imparted and, and, and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, and, and ultimately we end up, in, in a lot of the places where we aren't building it ourselves, we end up building it ourselves eventually anyway. Um, but I mean, I think that the main the main thing is is we're building a lot of stuff ourselves, but we're also using a lot of off the shelf components to like mix them together, right? Mm -hmm. Like kind of remixing existing systems, uh, so so like we can iterate quickly, um, and the AI like helps helps with a lot of that. Uh, like with the drone, uh, you know, we were able to, for example, there's the the claw hanging down, and we decided that we wanted it to hang a little bit lower. Um, like classical robotics, you would you would have to like redesign that entire thing, redo the mechanics, or, like yeah. the, the equations, uh, the dynamics of the of the system. Um, we just like found a block of wood in the shop and threw it on there, uh, and it dealt with it, right? So, uh, 
yeah so a lot of, a lot of this stuff it's custom but it's also kind of off the shelf or it's easy and um yeah just trying to iterate as quickly as possible so if you were to try to get into the psychological profile of your ai drone how is it like, how does it think how is it receiving information making decisions yeah so i mean it's seeing it's seeing data from all of its sensors which are uh, so it's got excuse me it's got a uh, uh, um, it's got accelerometers, uh, velocity sensors, position sensors, uh, and the angular velocity, angular acceleration. So it's kind of got kind of all, all of those those kind of sensors, and it also has sensors measuring uh, uh, the strain on the on the harness. So if it's if it's hitting if it's running into its training wheels, it can kind of detect that. Uh, similar on the uh, on the claw, it's it's swinging around. Uh, it's got sensors to detect how it's swinging. Um, so it's it's got that and it's doing that. Uh, you know, it, it gets kind of snapshots from each of the, these sensors, uh, and then it's just trying to predict. Uh, given this is where I am, given that I spin my props at this speed, what's going to happen immediately next? Mm-hmm. Uh, and just kind of be able to predict what's it, what's it going to happen if if I take these these actions. Um, so there's kind of those, that's kind of those two steps. So it makes a prediction and does it have a few different outcomes and there's like quantum. Yeah. Of- so it's searching, it's searching a huge number of paths simultaneously. Uh, Got one more engineer to, to show in the discussion here. <laughs> yeah. It, it, just like that. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Man. You got it. Like, well, what I used to be. This is embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. I have to check Nice to meet you. Nice to meet it's you in too. the podcast now. So. <laughs> You're probably in the shot if you could stand between them. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. Squeeze back here somewhere. Or I can not stand anywhere but there, yeah, in front there. of the cameras. I'll yeah, take over you, the podcast. You're just kind of weird on the podcast. Well, you can pitch uh, your fundraising, like plug stuff. <laughs> <laughs> He'll edit that out later. <laughs> so, how was last night? Sorry to miss that. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Black out, you don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I will. Sure. I could grab him the last stool. We could all be in the yeah. There you go. Together. I bailed out because I had a 3D printer fire at home. So got to sort it out. And yeah, you were you you you're checking your like he he has like a security camera looking down at his 3D printer, uh, which was printing like a tool organizer, a custom tool organizer that yeah. he designed. And then, we, like, we were both looking at it at the end of the day yesterday, and then just like, is that smoke? Like, <laughs> it was barely, on the camera, like, the resolution was just barely good enough yeah. to see smoke. Yeah, I mean, you could see, look like it was coming up from the back of the power supply. And I was, I was kind of did a double take, and I was like, look, and then we were trying to figure out, like, if it's a shadow, because, right, like, right. you know. And so then, um, I was getting ready, because I've got the, a smart outlet, too, so I can turn, shut the printer off, shut the power off from my phone. That's why I got the camera on it. So, you know, if something starts going screwy, I can... Well, it was offline for some reason. So I called my 13-year-old daughter up. I was like, Ava, can you check the 3D printer? I think it's smoking. And she's like... Dude. So you you were here watching the whole situation? Yeah. Whole... Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she's so like, I'm, I'm running. Yeah. I was like, she goes, but don't worry. I'm outside. I'm not, uh, I'm not running in the house. I'm like, you can run in the house right now. <laughs> <laughs> just get to the 3D printer. So Put the fire out. She goes yeah. in there and she's like, "Yep, yep, it's smoking." I was like, uh, "Turn the power off." So she shut it off, and so then she washed it for me while I drove home. <laughs> I was like, "If it start, if it gets worse or keeps smoking, you know, call me back." Because uh, I was get, had to pick up our son from or my son from daycare, but yeah. probably worth so. mentioning that oh, like several of the parts, I guess particularly for the for the hammer tool. 
or have been reprinted at your house. <laughs> oh yeah, right. Um, all of the parts on the hand, the impact hammer were printed in my house, as well as Dang, all the nests on the three D on the cart. Oh, yeah, grown and. Just in case people think that we aren't like a scrappy star. I don't think it'll be in the shop. Yeah, we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the three D printing's done on my three D printers at home. Thank you, but I don't think it'll. Uh, I don't think it'll be in the shop, so I think it's uh, better without it. But it's okay. Everyone will still hear me. So, uh, you were talking a little bit about the psychology of the printer. I thought that was uh, interesting. We could just yeah, yeah. tie that up where I wanted to talk about the structural stuff with you a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the yeah, the basic idea is it's taking it's taking the current current state of uh, its environment, uh, predicting what's going to happen if it takes particular actions. Uh, so that that's kind of the AI model. It's learning learning that uh, those dynamics. Uh, and then when it's actually flying, it's searching through thousands of possible trajectories it could take, uh, and trying to find the one that is most most rewarding. Uh, so like similar similar to like uh, training a dog, that you give it rewards for things that you want it to keep doing. Uh, so you kind of find find uh, some some method for uh, specifying what you want in terms of rewards, uh, and then it just tries to find the the path of actions that lead to the most reward. Uh, yeah, very very similar very similar to. Uh, yeah, training training a dog or something like that. So what might those rewards be, and how uh, would those materialize? Yeah, so like one reward might be uh, how you get more more reward if you're near to the goal, the position that it's supposed to be in. Uh, one reward reward might be uh, if it's stable, so if it's not if it's not like uh, uh, tilting a lot or, or, or you know, yeah moving around too quickly. Uh, using less energy is actually a, a useful reward. Uh, a lot of times, even though it's uh, yeah, it's actually actually a reward that, that seems to be used in in, in um, uh, biology uh, often as well, like uh, to just minimize minimize energy consumption. Mm -hmm. um, it tends to be a pretty general. Uh, so you're just kind of tweaking tweaking those. Um, ideally, ideally, the the better the AI system, the fewer rewards you need. Right? In, in kind of the worst case, you end up having to write a bunch of code just to define these rewards, and you've kind of in in writing those rewards, you've actually spent more time than you would have if you would have just done it done it by hand or something like this. Um, so, so yeah, so th th by this point now, the, the rewards are actually quite simple. It's mostly just hold this particular position, uh, don't use as, you know, use as little energy as possible. Yeah. So, I'm sorry, can you repeat your name and your position at the company? Sure, hey, I'm Randall Pope, and uh, I'm a mechanical slash structural engineer, uh, kind of learning as I go on the structural side in, in civil engineering. I'm more trained in, in mechanical. Uh, in architecture, but um, do you have a PE? No, I don't have a PE. No, I um, I actually work here in town at Cook Medical and cool. kind of moonlight here with the guys. So, yeah. And so, how long ago did your role here start? Uh, I guess I got involved here about six months ago. Mm -hmm. So I've been I've been into into this world of sort of digital construction, digital manufacturing for maybe five years. So started back in University of British Columbia. With the wood processing center, mm -hmm. so you know, similar idea of, of uh, model to machine and like perfecting that workflow and doing interesting things in architecture and materials. Do you know the twenty additive manufacturing guys? Uh, I haven't met them now. Where in British Columbia were you? Uh, Vancouver. Vancouver. Okay, yeah. that's about four hours west of them. So yeah. yeah. Uh, and then, what other kind of construction automation stuff did you? Uh, experience-wise have the best? Yeah, so so at the time, back about five years ago, I was working at Geldwin, which is a window and door manufacturer out in Oregon. And so they're, I mean, they're, they're a manufacturer, so they're, they're going through kind of a digital transformation. 
and trying to become more efficient, trying to just build their product in mm -hmm. a smart way. But it's what you see there with a lot of manufacturers is just that everything is still paper-based. Everything is still based in you know somebody's head, and sure. it the way that it flows is just is very inefficient. And um, so I was doing some of that work, uh, working at Oregon Tech, um, energy efficient buildings, teaching a little bit. And, and just kind of monitoring the situation over the years of how these technologies are converging and you know what's becoming doable and um, and then eventually let's see where's where was I next um, I got involved with uh, uh, in Toronto at uh, the university there at Waterloo also with um, 3D printing clay so with Potterbot. Um, just kind of dabbling all over, and, and you know, with digital workflows is mainly my thing. So slicers and you know, getting and 3D modeling, getting from the 3D model to the machine. Potterbot is that the same machine they used uh, in Colorado, the emerging optics? I group? think it is. I, they have a much bigger one, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the universities have kind of desktop versions of that. It's a radial system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and. Um, you know, operates on G-code, and so from the 3D model, you just basically produce G-code from that versus, you know, the, the other the other spectrum of technologies that, you know, you're producing robotic code or G-code or, you know, I don't know what these guys are doing actually. <laughs> I don't know what that code looks like. Voxel, evidently. <laughs> oh, that voxel guy. Based, it's, yeah. it's not these guys. It's <laughs> yeah. that guy. Yeah, we're all in a different discipline, but. Um, we, we trust he knows what he's doing, so we follow him. Uh, <laughs> From what I've seen of the drone, it looks like he does. So, mm -hmm. so I've, I've gotten to know a few groups of people like Taryn, and I'm not I'm not a, a hired member of the team. I just kind of volunteer here and do what I can to support them because I really believe in the technology. I want to see it happen. But my, my evolution of coming to them has been just kind of coincidence that they're in town. But also, after seeing all the 3D printed startups, I've been, I guess, disappointed with the direction, you know, because the environmental impact to me is, is a major issue there. And I just see that that is, uh, it's just problematic. And so coming towards a more natural material makes a lot more sense sure. to me, so. While I was gone, did you guys talk about uh, fundraising at all or startup stuff? Yeah, I, don't know. I haven't talked about mm -hmm. fundraising. No. I was telling my story about my 3D printer. Cool, good. Fire <laughs> <That's> good. <laughs> good story. Fundraising, that sounds like a Zach. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're uh, so far we've been funded by National Science Foundation, uh, and then also uh, State of Indiana has given us a grant, and then we, we recently uh, went through uh, ODX, which is a uh, uh, startup accelerator uh, based out of West Coast. Um, so just kind of wrapping up with that now and starting to, you know, we do, we don't have we we have enough money right now to, to last us a while and get through this this next uh, habitat build, um, but yeah, just starting to talk to investors and see, uh, yeah, see what see what the market is like and yeah, it sounds like you should wait until after the habitat build and raise <laughs> it a higher valuation. Yeah, yeah, I mean we'll we'll see. Uh, it depends on depends on what what kind of offers we get and how that's. I mean we we've, we've already gotten some uh, some money in, uh, but yeah, yeah, we're just just talking to people, right? Yeah, so I guess a lot of the, the most important work you have to do now is getting to that Habitat project, uh, and you're not really you're not trying to make new hires to get there. Like you guys will be able to do it with your current. We can team. do it. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be it would be nice to move a lot faster, 
uh, I think I think we could we could move faster and we could get to lower cost. We could get to scale faster with more people. Should the people um, send you resumes? Uh, yeah, yeah. If you're interested, definitely, definitely uh, get in touch. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Which what are the top positions to fill? I mean, yeah, right now the 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 top position we're looking for is uh, 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 perception engineer. So helping with the the localization mapping, uh, yeah, all that kind of stuff. But uh, definitely interested in other people in, uh, who who have experience with uh, reinforcement learning, uh, also uh, software engineers. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So the Habitat project happens, and then uh, what's the next move from there, and how much capital will you need at that point? Um. So from there, I think the so kind of getting getting the Habitat build is is kind of the zero to one to get something actually mm -hmm. built, uh, and then from there it's just about scaling it up. Uh, and and making it happen faster, which which then it comes out to, to making it cheaper, um, and and the uh, I mean yeah we'll see we'll see what the what the capital, yeah what, what makes sense there. I mean really most of the capital is necessary to build the houses um, by next year. Uh, it's not like we're going to be burning money uh, whatever Uber style to, to just like make things really cheap. Uh, like we can we can definitely be yeah even with the, even with the habitat money we're getting revenue in. Uh, and I think by, by next year we'll be, we'll be, uh, you know, we won't be making enough money to pay for salaries for the R and D to make it faster. Um, but we will be selling homes for, uh, you know, at close to probably, probably close to zero profit, just like trying to maximize the amount of work we can get done. Um, but yeah, we don't, we don't need VC money to build the houses. Uh, we need VC money to make the houses, to build the houses faster and cheaper. Maybe there's a really big demand for earth and homes and you sell a big profit. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely there's definitely a lot of people interested. Uh, I, I think we have we have more people wanting to buy houses from us than we have than we have capacity to build them. Sure. Um, Including individual home buyers, individual home as buyers, well as developers. Developers, yeah. I yeah, mean, there's, one there's is a lot of interest to overcome that amount right now. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's mostly it's mostly just about yeah moving quickly. Uh, I mean, we could we could try to bootstrap things and and like just sell you know to you know a million dollar home and kind of work our way up the custom home, but. Um, yeah, I think we're, we're excited to hire more smart people and, and pay them pay them well. And uh, yeah, it's not going to make sense to, to sell individual homes to, to, to fund that. We, we want to get, uh, yeah, need VC money to get the get the ball moving faster. Do you spend a lot of time looking at other Adobe homes and Earth and... Yeah, we've talked to a bunch of people, uh, especially out in the uh, in the Southwest, who have built built homes in this way, kind of learn from them uh, how, they, how they build, uh, how they solve certain problems that definitely have... Uh, yeah, people we call up. Uh, yeah, how have you solved this problem? What's the you know? And because even though it is uh, it is automated, like a lot of the ways they solve problems uh, work work well for us too. Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time looking at uh, just like other research projects that are building houses too. Like Cologe in uh, Europe just finished their first home, and their um, one of their leaders came on as an advisor to our group last month, and they're flying out uh, later this month to visit the site. So this is our site. Uh, but they, they are doing code compliant uh, European builds right now and kind of going through their... So from like a, a building standpoint, a lot of time looking at details, how they're like solving problems, how they're meeting current code, how they're meeting current seismic, that kind of stuff. Cool. Yeah, they, yeah that, the details and figuring out everything around the walls uh, is where actually a lot of the cost comes in. I think if you, if you do that incorrectly, it can 
at a huge amount of cost, uh, and like figuring out really how to streamline that is we spent a lot of time. Yep. Uh, Danny spent a lot of time. I mean, coming from a building background, it's all about how you like deploy humans efficiently. If it's humans on a site, it still has to be efficient. So I like that's the, the mindset I have when looking at like detailing these houses. This is a structural question, I guess, but how does where does the roof rest on? What's well, a load bearing wall? It's a so load bearing wall. Yeah, there needs to be a load path, you know, right through the wall and down into the foundation. Mm -hmm. um, but the detail on top of the wall is something that we've been. Yeah, there's a couple it's options there. Yeah. Though. Code has concrete or wood. Um, we have wood or split wood, where we can use the middle of it as a chase for electrical. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's exactly. I mean, yeah, but from there, I mean, it's basically a top plate, and then you put a top plate's the best way to think of it. Yeah. That, that that reduces the pain of the next trade. They're used to tying into a wooden top plate. If we put concrete there, then they're like, they're drilling in. It's all foreign to them at that point. Most three D printed houses do a wooden top plate as well. Sure. Yeah. That, and for that reason, I'm sure, it's just to, to make the next trade uh, agreeable. Yeah, no, I think I think long term though, figuring out some of those details where we can save material. You know, save a wooden top plate, sure. um, eliminate it, simplify reinforcement. Those are some of the opportunities. And that's some of the stuff Kaloge is doing now. Is their, their yeah. top plate is like a pretty lightweight. Uh, it's like wood splines with like a couple sheets of ply. So they're they're already cutting. That cuts out a bunch compared. The code requires like four inch by eight inch beam. You're talking like something that's super custom, super big. A, you know, a lot of board feet in its production. Um, but yeah, I mean. There's probably paths to very little on top if you've got, especially a dead straight or like if you can lay on it in a way that like um, is plumb from from the get go. Um, a lot of the concrete poured in the previous earthen homes, uh, is a lot of that's to get level with the top plate because that's not necessarily where they're at when they're done building. Interesting. So they'll pour concrete just to get a level surface. At the yeah, top. it corrects from leveling. It corrects from the like amount of shrinkage the wall has. You may lose one to three inches depending mm -hmm. on your moisture content over time of drying. So it's a little bit hard to predict plumb. Um, again, us using less water, that number reduce is reduced. So some of those out of plane tendencies are, are not so so bad. Or out of plumb tendencies. Well, and then we haven't really touched on like some of the dynamics of the material, right? The one of the, from, um, early on, like the first day that I came here, we drove nails into the wall, right? Uh, sure. How dynamic it is. You can put it, unlike concrete, right? You can drive a nail right into it, it holds. Uh, wire staples, you know, staple Romex to it. Uh, screws, I mean, just regular, like, um, construction screws, you can screw them right in there and they hold. You don't have to drill. It, it's... That still confuses me, honestly. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it, like, when you see that happening, it, it doesn't feel right. It feels like it should be splintering off. It should be breaking off. But the tensile strength of concrete, it's so hard mm -hmm. that it's going to rupture in response to impact, whereas the, the earth is acting. It's not like wood, you know, it, but it's somewhere between, like, it's like if you had a big chunk of MDF, like real processed wood. I think it might feel like that. I'm not quite sure. Yeah. But it's it's one of those things where you, you see it happening, you're like, eh. But if we can get, like, um, code acceptance that we can come up with a system to attach rafters directly to our walls instead mm -hmm. of having to include a top plate, right? If you know, mm -hmm. maybe make a custom uh, hurricane clip or something of the sorts, you know, that's a little bit different that distributes sure. load out a little bit more and, and you know, do the testing and get acceptance. I mean, those are the kinds of things that I think that will propel us even yeah, really further to the next future. level. Safe cost and complexity. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I mean, I think this illustrates a really good point that there are two paths right now 
that I see. There's the sort of traditional cob and people who live in that world. And it's, it's known. I mean, it's been around for thousands of years. And then um, there are these circles in universities and a few startups that are trying to push the envelope here and you know automate, but also innovate with materials, construction techniques, geometry, mixes, all that sorts of thing, enzymes. Yeah. Look into that quite a bit, but that's what's I think really exciting, and you know that in combination with the technology is I think what's going to propel it to the next level. But it also creates dozens of problems. You know, like this company has probably three core. Like this could be three companies just solving the number of problems that are here. But I think it's a it's an evolution over the current additive manufacturing and construction. Like the you know, for one the realization that the three D printed mortar is problematic. You know, I, I, I see a lot of companies coming to that realization eventually that What you have printing mortar experience too? Other uh, than the clay? I w a little bit with Atmoscore, yeah. And then um, uh, Citizen Robotics in Detroit. I've worked a little bit online with them, not in person. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with it um, here and there. But yeah, the environmental impact of it, cost of it, um, I mean, there's a ton of research in it, and I think they're going to solve some of the problems, but it's still going to be, to me, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to shit talk any of those people because I think it's, they're doing impressive work. Feel free. But <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's um, to me, it's like clean coal. It's bullshit, like, like in, in the sense of the environmental impact. Like we're striving, like we know that it's problematic. There are so many opportunities to improve it and people are doing that. But at the end of the day, we're still gonna be left with a material that has a high impact. And um, you know, maybe if it's just a little less bad, it's acceptable, but I think um, a lot of people are gonna come to the realization that we've gotta go in a different direction. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I was telling these guys, like, the environmental stuff isn't such a priority to me mm -hmm. because uh, you never know what happens. Maybe someone comes out with a new material overnight that's more environmentally friendly or sure. something like that. Uh, yeah. And it's just absorbing concrete or whatever. Any automation whatever. is good to have more digital stuff on a job site as opposed to, like, you're saying, the paper base, like, mm -hmm. uh, less analog, more digital. Right. That's, a, that's, a, that's the, one of the arms of it, you know, the digital aspect of it, the, the, uh, the autonomy of it through machine learning. And then, the, you know, the other part here is that you can do these sort of like uh, in situ operations. You know, you're not tied to a platform that is that is based on scale. You know, you don't have to go bigger and bigger and bigger. And so all of these things are huge problems to solve, but huge opportunities, and they're all kind of encapsulated in this one group. Um, yeah, I met with Apiscore a few times. They won't let me uh, see their printer in action. I went to their yeah. printed building in Dubai. Um, often when you see a printer in action, there's challenges, uh, especially if they're printing something new. Uh, it's not always easy. Did you see it going? Mm -hmm. And so is they, there anything they did, to say they about They did that? a little, little test wall that was probably like 10 feet long. How high? Um, it got about a foot before, sure. before Something happened. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was. So uh, the particular issue, I mean, there's always something that happens. Yeah. But that particular issue was the conversion um, from the AutoCAD model or the AutoCAD sketch. Uh, it, it, it wasn't a smooth curve. 
Sure. So their their slicing algorithm, which I'm not, that that's very closed off. I'm not sure how it operates, but something it, it, to do with the number of points in the curve, exactly, either having too yeah. few or too many. They they thought they had a curve, but it was actually faceted, and so that caused some problems with the speed of the printer, and then there was a lot so of start stops at every sharp point, so right. you you know then you get yeah. pooling. There's the, if if your feed rate's off and you're getting mm -hmm. pooling, you're getting you're not getting the right smooth you know curve that you want, and then you know you go back with the trowel and clean it up, and, and then it's it's even worse than a manual process at the end of the day. Up, Certainly. But yeah, so I think there's a little bit of, with a lot of startups, there's a little bit of smoke and mirrors, and you know, there's also issues of proprietary, you know, I mean, with your position, I could maybe understand why they, they wouldn't necessarily want to show you everything. Well, it's a bad thing not to show anything because it's a sure sign that it's not going super well. Like, if yeah. they're printing something and it's cool, and like you mentioned something about your system, and you're like, yeah, you could show that. That's a strong suit of ours. And it just made me think, like, so many companies try to say, oh, we don't want to show you what we have because it's, like, so great, whatever. They would show it if it was so great because someone else will come up with it and they'll show it. So if you don't show it, they'll get the attention right. for right. it. Uh, and people who don't want to show stuff, for, in my experience, every time it's been proven that it just isn't show-worthy or they're afraid that it may be a mess or something may go wrong. But for me... I don't mind seeing stuff go wrong. It's a startup. It's innovation. Like if you have to break stuff to fix stuff and make new stuff. So there's always the impulse to want to like to hide, you know, what, what's not going well. I mean, just not just with, with startups, but like in life. Sure. But then it turns out like when you're talking about audiences on social media or or whatever whatever media, um, people want to see the story and and I think and people want to see progress and it's it's like you cut you don't want to get into that trap where you're not showing anything and then you, you know you wait you show something and then people they might not be impressed because they, they haven't seen how far you've come, you know? Mm -hmm. So we're definitely not shy about how hard, like what Randall is basically like describing, like it's not just one hard problem, it's multiple hard problems and we will have to raise a lot of money in order to solve them. So we're not shy about saying like, look, we've done this and like we think it's impressive that we've gotten here and we want to get, we want to get this far and then we want to raise money and that's when we'll really solve these problems. Like, you know, we're not we're not trying to do everything and, and have it all be perfect. Well, that same breath, though, like, if there's a deployable solution, we should be deploying it. Like, that's what Habitat sure. is an example of. It's like, it isn't the cheapest solution. You know, it is more complex to wrap earth and hempcrete than to carry the R value inside it. There's a lot of reasons why that's a, a difficult <coughs> problem, but we learn by doing. It's progress. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's progress, and we're going to figure out a hundred different things from this build and we're going to have something to show for it. And, and yes, there's may increase valuation, may whatever it is, you can frame it a bunch of ways, but um, I don't want to be five years in this and have built nothing. Well, when, I mean, I'm more concerned about the education factor of what, what oh, we're yeah, going to learn so from much. it. All right. I mean, the, we, we have all these, we've done lots of different testing, right? We, we've built um, the, the test squares or um, the, cubes right, so right. we can test compressive strength on control we've built sample walls but i mean at the end of yeah build a big ass wall right at the yeah. end of the day there is a deployable solution in code and we're going to deploy it and we're going to improve on it and we're going to automate it like that's the goal like we even if we just automated what's in code now we'd be so far ahead of most building but that's that's not where to stop but yeah we'll yeah, I think, I think the nice thing about about all of these these problems is that because of because of the material uh, 
and kind of the existing code and all of that, like the, the starting point is actually like, we can start building at like custom home building prices um, right away. Uh, you know, people have built with Adobe for thousands of years. They're, it's, it's like a fairly forgivable system, right? I mean, that's why people who, who are building their own houses built this way because it didn't take that much skill. Um, so it's nice to just be able to get to that, get to that first build quickly uh, and without that much risk. And then like all these additional problems just help us get to that super low cost uh, right. eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm confident we'll be, able to, we'll be able to build our first houses uh, and, and do it at a reasonable cost. Someday, one dollar cheaper than Lennar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the competition around here is, is stiff too. Like the the uh, for, for like the very low cost housing, uh, you know, around Indianapolis, for example, that uh, there's uh, you know flat farmland. Uh, it's just it's very easy to build. Uh, labor is relatively cheap. Uh, so even even uh, uh, like the cheapest homes up in Indianapolis. Are, are like significantly cheaper than the cheapest homes out in Texas or like in Austin or in mm-hmm. uh, Denver or so even the the uh, the call co- it's hard to even say like we're gonna hit this dollar per square foot because it, the there's so many other factors in, involved if we can build cheaper than production home builders in Indianapolis that means we can build cheaper anywhere anywhere yeah yeah, yeah. yeah they're somewhere like what with land $80 a square foot or something $90? yeah dollars yeah pretty cheap like yeah when you're like 20 miles outside of Indianapolis, that's probably the sweet spot. Because you get too far, you get down to Bloomington or any kind of rural area, and it gets more expensive to ship the materials, and it, it, and you can't find the, the subcontractors. Like, you need scale, and you need, you need supply chain to build super, super cheap. So, uh, in, you know, Bloomington, for instance, we're about an hour south of, uh, of Indianapolis, and, and uh, you can't buy a production home here. Like, D.R. Horton and Lennar don't build in Bloomington, so... Mm-hmm. So the price per square foot, you're not going to build a house for less than two fifty a square foot, you know. So we're it, it'll make sense for us to compete in those markets in, in this market where we are first, uh, and then you know, get the price down and, and gradually compete directly with you know the bigger home builders. You also have a lot more hippies here, hippies, <laughs> so they are a little more minded to adopt. I think we can get the whole I mean, hippie market. I, I think we'll all lock it down, <laughs> including ourselves, especially when you yeah. throw in the hemp factor. Yeah, I think I think like uh, half, half of the people on the on the wait list yeah. want it want like our walls because they're uh, yeah eco where various various eco benefits and the other half is like yeah if it's lower cost and where it beat beat because uh, yeah it's interesting like some people uh, I mean, it, yeah they're like they're opposites right I mean one some people is like I don't care what my walls are made out of like I don't even know what my walls are made out of but if you can build right. me a nice house. Uh, polar opposite values, right? But you can still all interested in the same thing. Yeah. Well, then yeah. you got you know the other factor of what we did to your property, right? Oh. <laughs> yeah. the, 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 we got the, bulletproof walls. The I prepper. Mean, the prepper. Yeah. The, I mean, you know, market share of. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. What'd you do that day? <laughs> uh, well, um. So. We can place, we put, you maybe you put that one in the other two. Yeah, there's two other That's the only link you should have. I took some toys over to Randall's house. I'm going to land the wall. We had a uh, test wall. Um, About a foot thick. Foot thick wall built with these materials. Yeah. And um, we shot it up. I uh, started with 22 and then went up from there. And. Um, you know, just uh, see what kind of damage we could do to the wall. 
I was actually surprised because as small as the wall was, I was afraid it was going to start fracturing and then crack, right? You know, that that was kind of what was going through my head as I'm looking at it because I'm thinking, you know, more like kind of concrete or something. You're going to get some stress lines in there and that's going to crack. It didn't. I mean, um, we shot a uh, 12 gauge, um, you know, would kind of make Thank a little bit, time. bit of hole. And there you have to throw some material out. And then where we've had the biggest hole then at, at the end of it, we uh, took turns going through with my uh, AR with 223. And it took roughly about 60 rounds to poke a hole through it. Yeah, teeny little hole. Yeah. It's, it's got to be, yeah. And we were at point blank. I mean, we were with 20 feet on everything. I mean, my note, my Mosin Nagant that had armor-piercing rounds in it, we were at nothing. 20 feet. Uh, and it didn't go through it. I mean, it uh, went in the furthest, but I mean, and then I got some, uh, several friends that were like, well, what about a 50 cal? I'll bring my 50 cal over. So, I mean, there, there'll be another video. We'll maybe right. build another wall and maybe a full, yeah, uh, yeah full scale, yeah. thick wall like we would in the actual home <laughs> and see what it does. Because, I mean, obviously, yeah, I'm, but I mean, you know, for a drive-by, you're not going to be worried about, you that's know, right. 50 cal. I mean, that that's uh, generally long distance. I mean, not, not going to be point Are blank. Are you worried about a drive-by? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, but I mean, I'm just saying. I mean, well, we're talking about the prepper market. Military and, contracts in Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, yeah. Um, I think dollar for dollar, I mean, I, we would need to do, we need to do a side-by-side test. Like, I, I think we should do a second, um, a second video where we, we put concrete block, you know, like CMUs, scared as you walk. Cinder blocks. Yeah, it is scary. We'll have to be. We'll have to probably. We we'll have to build some kind of a shelter and you know for ourselves. Mythbusters it with some string or something on the trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But I, th- I, I'm, I'm optimistic that dollar for dollar because you know, our material is so much cheaper than, than concrete, or it's substantially cheaper. So I think dollar for dollar, it's probably more bulletproof because like, you know, a three inch concrete wall. For the same place as the three-inch concrete yeah. wall, you can print like a, a foot or a foot and a half of our, of our wall. So I think, and then, and then certainly again for the prepper market, um, re- definitely radiation resistance is higher. <laughs> What's the drying time after you place the mud or the adobe? So it's pretty workable for other services, like two weeks, a month in, like mm-hmm. when you're plastering and so forth. But it does dry out, and, and drying out is like you know, it's a relative term. It dries out to probably. It's, it's lowest point. Of when life. does it reach bulletproof? Oh, but that's probably the second day. <laughs> yeah. Um, the water might help. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Self-healing. But, yeah, but four months or so, you're going to have like a pretty much where it's going to be a steady state. What else are we talking about the pyramid, too? Yes. <laughs> oh, God. You have to do that. Where's, go, go change into your pharaoh costume. He has a pharaoh costume. costume Keep in mind, we're an hour and 45 minutes in, yeah, so we can talk about anything point. at this yeah. point. <laughs> but what if there's people who skip to the end, though? Because they, they, oh. they'll find out about the pyramids. Save so the best for I'm, last. But people will listen to it backwards. Those well, people. <laughs> we, uh, so I guess I'll just give a quick summary since I made the website and, and, and came up with the name. Which are the most important things, obviously, not the robot. The robot's just an afterthought. Well, you want to be a founder of something. Exactly. I want to be a founder of something, so... We have, founded Pyramid Scheme. Yeah, it's, it's Zach's idea. It's Zach, Zach's, um, it was Zach's idea, initially, to build... So, basically... So, you can take Zach down with you. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to probably grab on. <laughs> Zach <laughs> had the pyramid idea, you had the scheme. Exactly. It's, yeah. Just we have Pyramid Scheme Friday, where we come up with ridiculous ways to do stuff. Yeah. 
this was one of those. It's a, and it's a marketing, yeah, it is. So, 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 long story short, you know, Zach says, you know, essentially, like, one cool way to show how cheap this building material is is to build a huge, something huge out of it that would be way more expensive using, you know, conventional construction materials. And so a pyramid is the most obvious thing because, you know, what what do you think of when you think of a huge monument? Do you think of a pyramid, like, the, you know, the Great Pyramid of Giza or whatever? So we started to think, like, well, how much would it cost... You know, assuming you know, we're using this drone, you know, this electricity cost and these material costs for the clay and, and the aggregate, you know, how much would it cost to build a pyramid that's, whatever, one foot taller than the Great Pyramid of Giza? So we did the math and it, it ended up being, I think it was like, what, $200 million, like even taking a, a profit for Taryn, like, to do the work. It was like a very conservative estimate, yeah. Yeah, which, it, so it ended up being, it ended up being pretty reasonable. $200 million? Two hundred million. Yeah, thousand yeah. one year. So if any, if there are any billionaires listening right now, yeah, and you want a pyramid, your own pyramid, your own pyramid. Yeah. So, I want the pyramid to never stop building. I want the robot to always keep building. It's a bigger pyramid. Yeah, we can, yeah, we can, we can never range. stop. Yeah, I think that's I think that's important. Yeah. And uh, well, you know, if there's if someone wants like uh, some other like smaller smaller monument, you know, like they're definitely interesting to you. Like, like the uh, yeah. Uh, Ziggurat of Ur is one that, that I, I'm partial to. Uh, that was also actually built by uh, with Adobe originally. It's like many thousands of years old. Um, yeah, yeah, it's pretty incredible. In this region, are all earth based. So, so anyway, to fast forward a little bit. So, so we said, okay, like uh, right now, the big thing is you know Web three crypto uh, DAO DAO DAOs. Just a decentralized autonomous organization. So I don't think my audience is familiar with that. If you want to kind of explain it. Oh sure. Well, maybe they are, but either way, uh, you know, it's, it's essentially a way of of using uh, blockchain, you know, tokens that are created on, on a blockchain, um, uh, to essentially raise raise funds to do a project and then have some kind of not necessarily ownership uh, of of all the token holders, but involvement. So like voting rights. So so. Um, we can't, you know, we, we bought the the uh, the domain name realpyramidscheme.com because it's like it's a real pyramid scheme. A lot of these DAOs I, are basically pyramid schemes. Like this is this is also a pyramid scheme. Um, so, but a real one. And so, make a real pyramid. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, yeah. We, we, we yeah we just bought the domain name, put it out there, and then uh, it got shared with a couple people. And now we have like a like a healthy community in our in our Discord server. Again, realpyramidscheme.com. You can join the con- anyone can join the conversation. Well, those people shared with Bloomberg. Yeah, oh yeah, one of our friends shared it with the yeah Bloomberg uh, money money talks. Yeah, yeah. So if someone joins your pyramid scheme, what they pay five hundred dollars, and then you send them the product, and they have to get people to sign up for five hundred dollars. Exactly. <laughs> that be yes. If we really want to do a real pyramid scheme, the, 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 our idea is this, we haven't we haven't launched it yet because for you know starting a DAO in a way that uh, doesn't get you like arrested, like, arrested or fined by the SEC involves yeah you, you know you have to spend like several thousand dollars to incorporate in, in, in like the Marshall Islands or just whatever. trying to draw the distinction is there there's no actual multi-level marketing strategy it's just the pyramid it's just a pyramid it's yeah just a pyramid. that's why it's a joke because it's, yes it actually yes it's just a crowdfunded pyramid yeah crowd exactly so sharing a name with the popular multi-level marketing strategy exactly right. exactly we want to give people the most idea first um and so we haven't done it. We haven't sold any tokens yet. But the idea is essentially like you you buy a token. You know, um, you so you could buy a token, and then that would reserve you uh, like a certain amount of cubic area, like a certain amount of volume in the pyramid, which um, we think would be good to you. Like for example, you could be buried in the pyramid, so you'd be like wow. cremated because that's what pyramids not, are not for. Not live bodies because that could get yeah. gross. But so ashes. yeah, just like an alternative to in you know in, in, in interment. Um, it's it's a cheaper way to to well, cremation is cheap, obviously. Uh, um, and uh, cheaper than a burial site. So anyway, 
you can be in this pyramid for eternity, which is, you know, it's a pretty good deal for like a hundred bucks or whatever, like to get your spot. Um, so that's the business model, and then and then we would build it. We so use the to calculate. Does out. that include the cremation? A lot. Yeah. Uh, no. You have to no. Come no. Definitely not. Yeah, yeah. So it's well, that, that could be yeah. for a, yeah. a, a, another side business that we have, you know, sure. a, a place deep inside the pyramid that where we cremate. Right, right. Do you, well, the thing with the DAO is that a lot of people, you know, if people get interested, if there's some direction to head, they can kind of head. All, all the math right. for the solar right. gain for cremating the bodies is on the DAO page. Nice. Yeah, and uh, I think each shaft holds 30,500 <laughs> bodies worth of ashes, which yeah, is it's, nine acres of cemetery. So I think Jake said, I think it was Jake was like, uh, preserving, was it like land for the, land for the living by burying the dead? I don't know how I phrased it. Can you go up to the top, walk up there or something? I think, well, that, that, that's where the DAO comes in. I think that's a fun part of the DAO is that you can uh, vote on like, the idea is like vote, uh, voting on the location. So, okay, you know, here's a list of possible locations and whoever gets the most votes, you know, anyone who's, who, who holds a token can vote one token, one vote essentially. Uh, where, where to build it, what the design should be, um, you know, should it, should there be tourism, should it be a tourist attraction, like what, what's the, you know, what, what direction should we go with this? Sell t-shirts. I, I think uh, drone rides up to the top. Yeah. <laughs> so what about management Just after construction? <laughs> I mean, like with a traditional yeah. cemetery. TBD. Okay, TBD. I mean, I think there's an opportunity for the Dow in that sense. De too. Definitely. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. it had to be a nonprofit in order to again because of SEC regulations. It has to be a non. It had to be a nonprofit. So okay. there, would, there would never be a scenario where you could like distribute, say, like okay, there's profit from tourism or there's profit from burials, and now we're going to distribute. It would, it, would, it would still be all recycled back into the down. But you could you could salaries. You could have someone who's like the uh, cemetery, you know, mm -hmm. we thought about like, like, uh, like a mor uh, mortician or something. Yeah. Well, um, you know, pay and also pay for the you know electricity that the drones are going to use for the exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why you got to keep building new pyramids to keep that engine going. I'm so, still not 100% sure when the dead people came into play, but... <laughs> that was not the beginning Wait, wait, what, what, what were pyramids Mummies, for I mean, originally? Ah, uh, yeah, that's, that's the dead people. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then ideally, I mean, to, to be a... I mean, obviously, it's, it's good to have fun, but, like, to be a little more serious about it, we do envision, again, like, with a material that's really inexpensive, being able to essentially 3D print it, the idea of having towns or cities where you build a huge... Like, again, with charter cities... There's this potential to build beautiful monuments in the center, in, you know, in the town square, or or just outside the city, um, and and so there is that. I mean, obviously, it's a joke. There's this joking aspect to it, but we, we do kind of. We're not just thinking yeah, about pictures. Houses. You can dream, but, dream bigger if you have a, a deployable solution. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely it's, reasonable. That's the whole, it's, yeah. <laughs> there's um, and I don't know if this is kosher to mention or not, but there is one charter city that Zach is has been. Um, involved with talking to and, and, and uh, recently uh, one of our uh, employees who's not here right now he's in California at the, at the moment but he wrote kind of a manifesto about kind of uh, kind of describing you know how the material that that we're deploying is uh, kind of amenable to to building cities that people that are essentially human friendly cities people where people want to live and uh, and a lot of the you know charter cities the reason for starting a new city is like hey let's build somewhere that's better like where people actually want to live, where the architecture is beautiful, where etc. It's you know the homes are healthy. There's no volatile organic compounds coming off the walls. All, all these kind of you know let's build a great city. So again, I don't know if you want exactly it's comfortable talking about that or not, but um, that's not just something we're talking about. That's we're actually talking to charter cities, and, and that's honestly what we're probably most excited about. I would, I would say. Zach, yeah, <coughs> we'll leave it at that. Keep keep it uh, 
My brother's a part of, uh, uh, has a membership to City Dow, where they bought oh, yeah. some land in Wyoming. Um, I was one of you guys communicated with them or something? Yeah, we started talking to them. Uh, yeah, definitely if, any, if anyone's there, uh, any other other uh, members of City Dow, citizens of City Dow interested, uh, yeah, definitely reach out. Um, but we, we've got some ideas. Do? We've got some ideas that we haven't, I, I shouldn't say any, any of it specifically okay. because we're, it's not, uh, yeah, I've just been talking to a couple members sure. privately, but um, yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what comes of it. We finally found a secret. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's not my secret. The inner workings of the drone, that's like, anyone can know that. Like, <laughs> when it comes to the pyramid. Yeah, but not everybody. Which city is getting the first pyramid? <laughs> yeah. That's under wraps. Maybe there'll be a pyramid in every one of our cities. Who knows? Who knows? Is there anything serious we should talk about? No, we shouldn't talk about anything serious at this point. I mean, uh, is there anything not serious we could talk about? I think we, I think we played those. <laughs> Does it get you less serious? <laughs> yeah. How, how do you go? Ahead how many beers? I, I think once yeah. once you see the the real pyramid scheme website, you'll realize how not serious this is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I followed yeah, the natural burial. It's on Bloomberg, it's it's serious. It's yeah. a, it's. I mean, there's a legitimate need. And yeah, interest. the green burial. Like yeah, green burial, and, and and yeah, like the desire to be to bury buried in a monument. I mean, it's some sort of natural human, like, right. weird permanence. desire. Yeah, the permanence, like, significance to your yeah. life, you know, and, yeah. like, to be a part of, and to be a part of something larger. Um, and not to take up so much damn space, because cemeteries, like, I mean, you know, in Europe, they they pull out bodies after a few years and let somebody else be buried in that spot because they run out of space. What do they do with so the body? I, I They put them in crypts, I think. Um, they put them in uh, catacombs, stack uh, up the bones, and they still do that, and or cremate. But yeah, you, you only get a few years, I think, in Germany. Or, See, I, I told my wife years ago, just burn my ass, because they yeah. take up less space. Right. We were talking yesterday, maybe some of you guys will go to Mars and uh, end up buried there or something. <laughs> <laughs> Always a possibility. Drones on Mars. Yeah. You'd have to have start drone, Martian right? robotics. That's going to be a big tether. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now, was the Mars discussion after you guys had a few drinks, or was that over the fire? Yeah, yeah after and during. After okay, during. <laughs> excellent. I think it was like 60-40 who would go in the short term. When my wife was pregnant, um, and very emotional uh, hormones, you know, we, we watched, I think, Star Trek, where, where um, uh, Kirk goes into, or no, Kirk's dad, you know, who's out in space, and like, has to stay behind and get destroyed in the ship and mom's giving birth on the on the escape vessel and um, she made me promise I would never go to Mars. <laughs> never, never go to space. That's, yeah. that oh, space. Makes, so. That's different. Yeah, space. Yeah. Did, you have, you, did you have your fingers crossed? Uh, I, I, I'll just go tell her. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just make it a quick trip and we'll be good. Yeah. My, my wife went from I'm never going to space to I'm only going to space if, if the kids go too. Well, I think with the kids, <laughs> I think one of the funnier yeah, things that happened in like last six months is when Aya came in and had drawn like her house being built by a drone. Yeah. So I think like that ties back to the whole idea of the, the, the pyramid to me. It is just like this intention to dream bigger and like to start like breaking up those cognitive processes. Like the four story apartment complex next to us where we're recording this is like those are all over the country right now. And that building is in every city of anything over 50,000 people in the U.S. And it's just like trying to break up that stuff and start like, I don't know, kids should be dreaming crazy stuff. So should adults. Yeah. 
You know, I like, I don't know, like 1960s, was that our last monument? So when it comes to mind when I was, it was only like the St. Louis Arch. They didn't need to build it. Kids weren't Super cool. <laughs> drawing houses built with drones 10 years ago, so just like getting it started gets the ball rolling, makes people think about it. Maybe she'll come up with ideas in the next 10 years of her life before she enters the workforce that like, you guys didn't think of because she's been thinking about it so long. Well, I see it with Zach's kids. Like, they know stuff I didn't know until I was like 25. Yeah. And a lot of it's just like, like the fire last night. They built a box style fire. It's like, you know, I learned the other style in Boy Scouts, but I never learned the other ones until I was like 25, 30. It's, it's just funny, these things that, I don't know. As we're drawing away from practical things, it's just it's refreshing to see like dreaming of physical manifestations again, which is I think that's going to be more and more possible with like you know we're like right at the cutting edge of these tools and we're going to see a whole lot of manifestations with you know, AI becoming a physical part of our existence. What kind of design principles might you draw from nature hmm. or biomimicry? Yeah, biomimicry is a good example for me. One thing. Okay. Well, I, I think about this with 3D printers because it, we're talking about the scale, you know, like gantries versus, you know, drones and, and that if you look at nature, like what are the size limitations of, of, th of animals and, or mo mobile systems and stationary systems and systems that build habitats for themselves. And, um, you know, I... Regardless of like how we get there or how we figure it out, if you look at nature, it seems like self-evident that going larger is not the answer. Well, going, you know, um, if you're gonna go large, you're you're gonna be stationary. You're gonna be a tree. You're not gonna be um, something that is is mobile and flexible. And um, I mean, looking looking at like the structures that that ants build. Beavers, termites. Yeah, termites. Uh, you know, I mean, it's those are all kind of swarm team efforts. But you could also exactly. use like a spider as a comparison, which is much smaller and builds a pretty big structure comparatively to its size. Yeah, you said it much better. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so I feel like well, that's also sort of, to catch food. I mean, you know, also using functional. Yeah, using <laughs> materials that are available. I mean, nature. Right. Like, exactly. Bird saying, like minimizing energy use. I mean, ultimately, we're talking about reducing cost. I mean, cost essentially comes down to energy. Right. So like yeah, bird's nests or, or like, a, you know, termite mound or anthill ant or whatever, they're basically just using whatever materials are available and they kind of are doing very rudimentary calculations that result in like a structure that meets their needs. We're inching closer to biomimicry, but we haven't really found <laughs> a, a solid one yet. Yeah, I come from a different different place on it. Sure. Um, that's not, I mean, I, I can't say it's biomimicry. I mean, well, I think, I mean, I, I can go into like, I get excited about in, inside digestion making Earth stronger. It's one mm -hmm. that came up for a moment. Through like fungi? Uh, I don't think it's usually fungi, but I, I knew, and a lot of stuff on the table. People research different different approaches to it. It's usually in concrete, the research right now. I mean, all of the research is in concrete. It's very little in, in the Earth world. There's, there's just a handful of people doing stuff. Um, but I think the one that, it's not, again, not biomimicry, but um, I think the one I get really stuck on is thinking of the Earth wall's natural battery for heat, mm -hmm. which is the very obvious one. So you're like, okay, so passive solar heat, all that stuff's like on the table, basically everybody talks about that in grad school and then you know, it's kind of table stakes. The one that really gets me is the humidity, humidity battery yeah. of this type of material. That's where my brain starts to like shift me like, oh, this is so radically different from anything else. Um, and the amount of like water it picks up and holds in the summer, it's hydrophobic, so it's moving that stuff out. There's a hydroscopic, it's moving it out evenly through its body and then 
you basically have good humidity the entire winter because you had humidity in the summer. Which is a healthier. Yeah, yeah, it's just a, it's a healthier home. So in, in a lot of ways, I think. I'm like pouring all the energy and electricity into your home to get the humidity out in the summertime, right? Your walls are absorbing it. And then in the wintertime, you got humidifiers. You're pumping energy into there to get it back up. But I guess, yeah, yeah at the end right. of the day, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how we handle it now is we build some yeah. tight envelopes and we turn over the air with the CRV or something else and try to approximate these things. But if you use um, the more natural material you use and the closer you keep it to natural, the closer it acts in a way that is good for humans. Mm-hmm. And I think that, in terms of biomimicry, that's an exciting way to think about it. Um, the earth, like, lives with you in that regard. It's like it stays at the right, you know, everything for comfort. That's fascinating. And the thermal regulations, so, so humidity regulation, I think, is... That's, yeah, that's the one that surprises me. That's, that's surprising. The third, and a lot of people know about thermal mass um, and, and how, you know, with passive solar, like, if you have high thermal mass, then, then it can absorb heat from the sun during the day, but... That, that's one way to use thermal mass, but then there's also just like essentially thick, thick, massive walls act as a, a buffer against temperature swings. And so if you if you're if you're in a climate where um, the high temperature and the low temperature, you know, for example, ninety in the day and, and like fifty at night or something, uh, where where your set point is between those two, then just having that buffer against that temperature swing uh, ends up saving you energy costs to, to heat and cool your house. So like in some parts of the country, it's like you could save twenty percent on your energy bill just by having these. So you got temperature, humidity, sound, and strength as four separate uh, ad- advantages, I guess you yeah. could say. Fireproof. Yeah, fireproof. fireproof. Um, strength, the bulletproof, or <laughs> bulletproof in there? Yeah. In that question, like trying to pull it back, I think I always think of biomimicry as more of like a design philosophy mm-hmm. than as like a practical, you know, properties of, of the wall assembly. Um, you know, ways we do think about that is like vaulting and arches and sort of like the more organic forms because I think that's often when you're looking at biomimic architecture you know you can't say it's like I don't know post and pin foundation anchors you're like oh that's kind of mimicking a tree um but you when you do get into the more undulating shapes uh these these materials give you a palette of things that do feel more natural and they're aesthetic or more biomimic the geometry and then placement of the materials I mean if you look generally at natural structures they're often cellular um, foams, things like that. Uh, so, you know, foam core structures that are, if you if you analyze the the, the densities of say, um, you know, the structure of bamboo, the skin is denser, and you know, or or um, a lot of a lot of smaller plants have a foam solid foam core and a hard outer shell, and um, they're they're actually perfectly optimized. You know, you wouldn't want to make that outer shell any thicker. You wouldn't want to make the foam any thinner. Like they've evolved over time to, to be mm-hmm. extremely efficient at the placement of materials. And that is another opportunity here is, you know, dealing with a very heavy material, um, but the cellular structure of it, you know, whether it's becomes more like a foam or whether it's um, has different, different kinds of fibers or just uh, different geometries and the lifts of where it's placed. There are a lot of advantages and to for biomimicry in that sense, but um, no like specific examples. I think at this point, it's just a general principle. Yeah, I wonder if you built a community like what if you modeled it after an uh, like ant colony or something. So the rooms were like similar to the entrance and the garbage room and the whatever eating rooms. 
Yeah, I think I think probably the the optimal form ends up being being very similar to uh, ancient architecture, where they were also using massive walls. Uh, so a lot of times, then they're either using adobe or they're using stone. Um, so like if you look at uh, like ancient uh, Greek cities or like a lot of old old European downtown areas. Uh, old, like old towns or uh, uh, I really like the, the design of uh, so, some of the South American ancient cities. Um, so I, I think in a lot of cases they, they were actually designing with similar constraints, um, quality of life, and they have a lot of mass and a lot of labor. Uh, and that's, that's kind of what, we'll, what we're going to have to. Like the Aztecs and the Mayans you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think there's different, you know, different, different cultures approach differently. Yeah, Mediterranean um, seaside is stone. Yeah, Mediterranean <laughs> seaside is another example. Um, yeah, like Bangladesh is earth. You know, it's like you see these typologies over and over because their materials are similar. Hmm. Um, and it's just yeah, an ever-connected city of no more than the three or four stories at max that, you know, these unreinforced mass building assemblies allow. Yeah, a lot of times you end up with, with high density, but you can still have like courtyards, that kind of thing. Um, so that where you still get some SM outdoor space, uh, but it's more private. Um, but yeah, a, a lot of those cities were designed under similar constraints. And they're dope. And people love being there. They're some of the most expensive places to be. Yeah. I wonder how many are hidden like, under the roots of the jungle. Yeah. I think a, I think well, a, a good number. I mean, what is it? Like a third of the world's houses are earth right now? Something like that? Hmm. It's a hard number to pin down, but yeah, um, yeah many more. Like uh, living in the U.S., we you know it's not third here. It's not third. <laughs> yeah, you assume that. But uh, yeah, in the rest of the world, it's whether it's a quarter or twenty percent or thirty percent. Hopefully, that gets It's substantial. Yeah. yeah. A third of my square footage of my house is Earth. <laughs> That's my goal in the next couple of years. That's a cool point you bring up. Is that it doesn't need to be the only material you use for the walls. So you could have a lot of glass or some other wood or something else along sure. with. Well, we were yeah. talking the, the the 3D printer, uh, a guy buying a 3D printer here, uh, and it's, I think there's a short-term solution from his equipment that solves a problem from the um, grade beam to the bottom of our wall, because we need a tapered, um, you know, element that can have high compression, uh, and it's sort of ideal for that. There's also, you know, ICF forms that kind of taper out, or brick ledge lifts. There's, there's a lot of things that get there, but I think the answer is... You have to be somewhat agnostic to which is the, the solution for each part of the house. Um, I get really nervous when people are like, yeah, we're just gonna do everything. Like, That's wow. fascinating. So you plan on integrating some potentially printed concrete parts from your buddy who's getting a Vertigo printer and using them in your uh, your Adobe structures with your drone. I mean, I can't speak for everyone in the company yet, but I've already <laughs> been drawing the, your house. the addition to my house. I've been thinking like, I've been trying to solve this problem I, I'm thinking about going to do ICF training this month, um, so learning a couple different systems to get there, but at the end of the day, if he had the printer now, I'd make it work. Cool. Because I think having those languages meet is... Are you talking about like using those building blocks, or are you talking about so the print So the printer, no, the printer that he's getting prints in modular pieces, so okay. I would be printing the modular piece that goes from grade beam or foundation point to the bottom of the wall with the proper, proper flaring to catch and load pretty much just a permanent formwork for the rebar cage and the concrete you're pouring, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if he's got the printer, I mean, uh, complexity's free. You know, yeah. You do that geometry, it makes sense. Yeah. But then it also, what I like about it is that it creates an ecosystem, you know, yeah. of these technologies. And if we can get to that point, 
then we're really doing something exciting. Right. Yeah. Taking, us, taking the best yeah. of what each one of the materials is mm-hmm. best for, right? And then combining them in to make the best house. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, that, that's I, I think that's just fundamental to getting to a complete solution. Because right now there's there there's already some automation and some pretty high tech, you know, in this in this world of I mean concrete pumper trucks, you know, they're robotically controlled. You know, the guy just stands there and runs the controls, and you know, occasionally there is somebody usually guiding the tube to make sure it goes in the right spot. Um, but there are curving machines that run on GPS. There are all these little parts and pieces going around right now. Uh, but if if in one operation we can illustrate the whole you know ecosystem, um, I think it it will illustrate to people that don't have the, the, the vision for it yet, like what it can become. Sure. We don't get all the way with one tool. Yeah. That's just the end of the day. Because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, the, the constant critiques of, you know, basically we're just building a shelter. You know, a lot of the university projects and demonstrations that have happened in the past 20 years, they're pavilions for that reason. Because yeah. you can build a shell, yeah. but then what? It's a non-code situation and non-living situation. And then, yeah, there's all like adding design on top of all of those things. <laughs> Architecture is a real mess of a profession. But. Yeah, there's a lot that has to come together. But that's, yeah, that's true uh, for, I, I guess it comes back to, yeah, like solving the problem of construction is, you know, a group effort. There's, there's no one company that's going to do it, but um, I think we are, we do have a chance of solving a lot of it at once. We have a strong case for the walls. We have a strong case for the floors. Um, and concrete printing has a strong case for foundation elements, I, I believe, for a more unique construction. But yeah. And then structural steel for the roof. Real strong case for a roof. And someday vaulting. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone have anything left unsaid? <laughs> I'm all out. <laughs> Zach, how about just a five-minute outro monologue? <laughs> um, yeah. That was pretty solid. We talked about a lot of interesting things, um, and it won't be the last time I'm here to do a podcast, so if I can convince all of you to sit down with me again in the future, then maybe we'll do this another time. We have yeah, to do it inside the house that we build. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Even while it's being built, it's fine. Yeah. Is it a noisy Drones process? Overhead. Not too much, but the fans of the drone. The yeah. yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty we'll loud. we probably turn off the drone for a podcast. Yeah. yeah we, um, we'll get ahead we're not allowed bikes. to be underneath the drone while it's operating anyway. Yeah, yeah, Wait, what? We've definitely been underneath the drone while it's operating. <laughs> <laughs> you were bol- protected by the fall harness. I mean, it couldn't have reached you. The, the worst wreck was when the fall harness failed. <laughs> not my harness. <laughs> <laughs> You're all still here, so. Yeah. All right. Thank you for joining me today, and we'll do it again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.